Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have another great show for you today. But first, uh, Lindsay, do you have any media recommendations, shout outs, or just any other happy thoughts to get the good vibes rolling here at the start of the episode? Yeah, I feel like I always just have media recommendation because I love receiving media recommendations. So hopefully people like getting them as well. Um, But you and I saw the movie Bottoms uh, last week. I think it's getting a wider theatrical release and is available in more theaters now. But I wanted to recommend it because I loved it so much. It's like a teen sex comedy. Um, It reminded me a lot of Mean Girls, which was like very formative for me in my teenage years. There's also kind of hints of like the John Hughes movies from the 80s. Um, but it's set in a high school. It's these two gay girls who start a fight club to try to make out with cheerleaders. And it's just a perfect movie. Like it's a tight 90 minutes, which I feel like you don't see very often anymore. Movies are so fucking long now. And it's very silly. And there are parts of it that are just like absurd without like explaining why the world is like a little bit absurd in strange ways that you're not expecting but it's also grounded and like I feel like you could see a lot of your own kind of high school experience or how the high school experience is portrayed in this movie um I really loved it and I think everyone should see it I hope it becomes like a classic teen movie yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it as well. And I also need to give a shout out to Marshawn Lynch. Oh, who yes. Might be the greatest comedic actor of our times and is just generally, I think, one of the funniest people ever. Yeah. So he plays the teacher who's like the faculty advisor for the fight club that the girls start. And I also I heard that a bunch of his funniest lines were improvised. Like he's killing it. Absolutely. His post-NFL career, like, he's an acting boy now. Yeah. Uh, it also, <laughs> the the plot of the movie, I think, was, um, or at least, like, parts of it were slightly, like, close to home for us in a bit of a weird, like, idiosyncratic way, mm-hmm. which is that, um, so, like, the, the fight club ends up happening, but one of the concerns at the start is uh, it might get disbanded because they don't have a faculty advisor. Like, what if the faculty (laughs) advisor doesn't show up? Yeah. And uh, that exact thing happened at our high school. Yes. Um, Like, I I, I try not to talk too much about, like, specific things or people uh, in in the past because... You know, like I've I've made the choice to be a somewhat public person, but a lot of other people haven't. So, like, I don't want to, um, you know, share personal things that they may, might not want to be shared publicly. Uh, but th- this was on the news; it's already public. <laughs> um, we we had a self defense club at our high school um, that lasted about one semester because the faculty advisor really just didn't show up. Uh, and so it just turned into an after-school fight club. And um, this was right at the time when cell phone cameras were starting to become ubiquitous. And there was, like, I, and I'm, I'm not going to give these two people's names, but, like, again, this was on the news. They're out there. Yeah. But, like, one kid just beat the shit out of another kid. <laughs> and um, 
it was recorded on a cell phone video, got yeah. posted on YouTube. Yeah, early YouTube. And, and folks were like, where is the faculty advisor? He was he was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> he did uh, not show so up. He, he got let go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was uh, a, a, a weird part of my high school experience that I never expected to see portrayed on the big screen. Yeah, yeah, really nice. The movie was a lot bloodier than I was expecting it to be. Like, it was violent. Yes. But I loved it. Do you have a media recommendation today, Greg? I do. Um, so we recently watched a three-part docuseries on HBO called Telemarketers, which is, like, kind of an investigation of this of a particular kind of scammy telemarketing uh, industry. Like there, there's been a lot of media about um, like foreign telemarketing scams. Right. Um, like the, a lot of the big like scammy Indian call yes. centers, for instance. Oh, just quick, quick recommendation in there. The reply all long distance episodes back. Yes. Classic reply all. Very good. Amazing. Um, but yeah, so that, that aspect of scammy telemarketing has gotten a lot of shine um, but this was about a different kind of telemarketer scam yeah. that mostly is is based in the U.S. And, uh, well, this particular one was based in New Jersey. And it mostly raises money for, like, kind of, like, public sector unions. Mm -hmm. So mostly police unions, but, like, some, some like, firefighter unions and um, uh, some, some random like scammy charities related to like cancer relief funds and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so the, the person making it was a guy who just like didn't really have many life aspirations, dropped out of school young, and just a, a job at a local telemarketing center was the only career he could get. Um, and yeah, he, he showed up and at first, he was just like, hey, this workplace seems crazy, but, you know, I'm kind of a burnout, so, like, this is fun. I love it. But it is just crazy. Like, the, the folks here are wild. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just bring my camera in and just film some of the crazy stuff going on. Yeah. And then uh, he he makes a buddy there named Patrick J. Pespis, where, which... The show is theoretically about telemarketing. It is actually about Patrick J. Pespis, yes. who is maybe the most... He's one of the most charismatic people I've ever seen portrayed on screen, and I love him. He's incredible. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he suggests to the documentarian that like, hey, this, this is more than just a wild, zany workplace. Like, I think a scam is going on here, so... They start investigating it from the inside, mm -hmm. and uh, I I won't give any further details to spoil anything about the documentary or what they find. Um, but it was it was very entertaining. I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I really was impressed by how long the documentary spanned. Like mm -hmm. the early footage is from. 20 years ago or so yeah i think so like 2002 2003 something like that yeah and by the end you're in 2020 so it's like a super long time it's been this guy's like life's work so far like documenting his workplace and then investigating and creating this documentary of like just this crazy thing that he experienced when he was a teenager and it was really incredible you could tell that so much like love and thought 
went into creating this and it was really special yeah it, it was i we used to have we used to have like a big documentary phase we haven't watched a documentary in a while i yeah. don't think but this we used to watch bad documentaries though yeah yeah but they i mean a lot of them were very fun yes. like the the gerson documentary um where it yeah. starts off kind of normal and then the last 40 minutes are just like here's how much coffee to shoot up your butt uh, yeah, it took a turn. Yeah, very fun stuff. But anyway, th this was like an actual very right. good, very good documentary. Yes. HBO documentary. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, all right. So you wanna you wanna get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Okay. So before we start the show, we have just two very quick housekeeping notes. Um, the first is a bit of an announcement. So when the week where this episode is going to be released will be the two-year anniversary of Macro Factor, our Ooh. nutrition app. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's been it's been a very rewarding experience. Like it's it's helping a lot of people, um, and we we appreciate everyone who's used it, who's checked it out. Um, yeah, it's it's it, everything related to it uh, has just gone better than we ever could have anticipated, and we are deeply grateful. Um, and when this episode is published, um, our two-year annual report will also be published. We can link that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, if, if you're interested in just looking back at what we've been doing for the past year and what we have planned for this next year. Um, that will be linked in the show notes if, if you want to check it out. Like, you know, if, if maybe you've used it previously and you left because it didn't have some key feature you were interested in and you're like, hey, does it have this now? Um, stuff like that will be in the yeah. annual report. Or if you're a current user and you're like, hey, what, what do these folks have planned for the next year? Um, it's a lot. A, a lot of it's going to be related to further expanding and improving the coaching functionality, which we're very excited about. Uh, but yeah, if, if you're interested in that at all, it will be linked in the show notes. Second thing, just as more of a general housekeeping note, is uh, we're going to be shifting the next episode of the podcast after this one and the next research spotlight back by a week. Um, so this episode will be coming out the 13th of September. Um, on the prior schedule, the next episode would have been coming out the 27th. Instead, it will be coming out October 4th. Uh, the reason for that is basically just we have a lot going on. I'm going to be out of town for a week. And so instead of rushing to just get out lower quality content just for the sake of getting out content, uh, we're, we're just pushing everything by a week to ensure that the content is uh, of the quality you've come to expect. I'm not going to say the highest quality that's ever existed. Um, but people I, have come to expect very long, very in-depth podcast episodes. Yeah. I, and that I takes time. I, I feel like we're not in a position to like objectively uh, quantify the quality of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I have no but, idea. You know, it, it is it is some level of quality <laughs> and we don't want it to go below the normal right. uh, yes. level. So anyway, things are getting pushed by a week. Uh, just so you know, when, when an episode doesn't hit your feed two weeks from now, it's not because we're taking another long season break or anything like that. Uh, another episode will just be coming out the week after that. Right. Uh, all right. Um, plugs really quick and then yeah, get let's into do the it. content. 
Yeah. So if you're enjoying the show, please like, rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. It really helps us. If you're interested in hiring a virtual coach to help you with your training and or nutrition, Stronger by Science has a team of excellent coaches that can help you. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source and support the podcast at the same time, buy from bulksupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD to get a 5% discount. And like Greg mentioned, Macrofactor, two-year anniversary this week. Um, that's the main product that we focus on these days. It's a premium macro tracking and diet coaching app. We both use it and love it. And I think we're almost to 90,000 other people using it now, which is mm-hmm. crazy and cool. Uh, you can try it for free for 14 days by using the code SBS during sign up. It's available on the App Store and Google Play. Or if you want to learn more, you can check out the website macrofactorapp.com. Absolutely. Uh, and if you would like to stay up to date with all of the cutting edge research getting published um, to help you uh, build more muscle, get stronger, etc., uh, check out MASS. That stands for Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. Um, so yeah, if you're a strength or physique athlete or coach, that is an excellent resource. Um, if you would like to follow the show, uh, get plugged into the communities, um, etc., join our Facebook group and or subreddit. The Facebook group is Stronger by Science Community. The subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash stronger by science. Um, if you would like to get uh, free study breakdowns sent to your inbox, typically every other week on podcast off weeks, though, again, circling back to the show notes, one of the research spotlights is going to get pushed by a week as well, just to stick to that uh, research spotlight podcast, research spotlight podcast cadence. Um, you can uh, check that out and sign up at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. Uh, and finally, as a, another reason to join the groups, um, if you'd like to ask questions that we'll answer on the podcast, uh, you can record a brief audio clip of those questions, keep it under 60 seconds, and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, when we're recording an episode on a particular topic and soliciting questions about that particular topic, we will post about that in the Facebook group and subreddit. So if you want to uh, ask just any general question, you can record that clip, send it to the email address. Or if you want to increase the probability that your questions will get answered when we're looking for questions on a particular topic, make sure to join the Facebook group and subreddit so you will know uh, when those prompts come. Um, And I think that's about it in terms of plugs. Let's get into the episode. So, uh, just as a general note, I'm sure, I don't know what this episode is going to be called yet, but I'm sure as you're looking at this, you can see the title and uh, it will either directly state that this is part two of the micronutrient series we're working on, or the title will strongly imply that it's part two of the series. (laughs) Um, but just want to make it clear, we're, we're picking back up where we left off after the last episode. So um, yeah, check out the first episode in this series if you haven't already. In this episode, what we'll be discussing is actual micronutrient targets. So uh, last, last episode, we talked about just the, the general categories of micronutrients, what micronutrients are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way most people interact with micronutrients is via micronutrient targets like RDAs specifically and almost exclusively. 
Um, and so, like, for instance, I assume most people don't know what the actual RDA is for, say, like calcium or vitamin A or whatever else just right off the top of their head. Uh, but nutrition labels tell you how much calcium or sodium or whatever there is in a product relative to the RDA, like as a percentage. So those nutrient targets, again, specifically RDAs, are really providing the single anchor point that people have um, for interpreting how how much of each micronutrient they should consume. Um, and so, yeah, like people generally want to make sure they're consuming enough micronutrients and they're, they're not uh, uh, entering a state of undernutrition. Um, but most folks also generally don't have a particularly nuanced understanding of micronutrient needs, unlike, say, calories or macronutrients. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we want to discuss in this episode, kind of where those nutrient targets come from, what they mean, and uh, how you can interpret them uh, for yourself. So um, before we get into all of that, before we, we delve into that research and, and some more of those nuanced topics related to the actual micronutrient targets themselves, um, I think we should first discuss a little bit of the history of micronutrient targets uh, and government recommendations related to micronutrient intake. And I I believe you did uh, quite a bit of, of reading and historical research on that lens. So yeah, take it away. I did. Yeah, not as much as aspartame. So don't be too scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the first set of government-sponsored recommended dietary allowances, which is RDAs, was released in 1941. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what prompted that. So as American men were called for military service during World War II, uh, a hefty one-third were found to be suffering from disabilities known to stem from poor nutrition, which is rough. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah, and surveys of family eating habits carried out by government agencies in the mid-30s found that undernourishment was widespread and serious. So in response to this, the president at the time, FDR, convened the National Nutrition Conference for Defense in 1941, which is just kind of a wild name for a conference. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think it's um, indicative of a lot of things, both both good and bad, that um, that are are just kind of hallmarks of modern life, which is like, I don't think... I don't think that many people think that hard about just how many aspects of our modern world were like directly shaped by war and like yeah. wartime considerations. Exactly. So yeah, like the the impetus for the first micronutrient recommendations was was war related. Mm -hmm. um, like you you had data from the 1930s suggesting yeah lots of people are malnourished, but. When does the government decide it's actually time to take action and do something about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, when when you want to make sure that that the that the boys we're sending over to Europe are are ready to fight. Right. Yeah. So the result of that uh, conference was the first set of government sponsored RDAs and it started with six vitamins and two minerals. So they were vitamins A, B1, B2, B3, C and D and calcium and iron. Um, in a government report called Are We Well Fed, a report on the diets of families in the U.S., which was also published in 1941, the authors concluded that only one-fourth of families in the United States ate a diet that could be classified as good. 
Um, and they they defined good if it exceeded by 50% the minimum requirements set for those vitamins and minerals. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's a relatively low bar, but that many people still <laughs> failed yes, to clear it. Exactly. Yeah. So as an immediate solution, the conference suggested food enrichment programs that were intended to restore foods to their pre-processed levels of nutrients. Um, And food manufacturers had already started some enrichment, specifically adding B vitamins to flour in the late 30s when those vitamins became available in bulk through industrial synthesis. Yeah. And and just as a little bit of context for that, um, a lot of those B vitamins are present in the germ of wheat. Oh, yeah. Um, But like in general, white flour is is it tastes better, it's easier to work with, blah, 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 whatever. Um, so yeah, like like processing to remove the, mm-hmm. the germ of the wheat uh, did make a, a tastier product to eat, but did also remove a lot of those vitamins. Um, so so yeah, that, that is what is being added back in in food fortification programs. Right. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of foods that maybe had more vitamins and minerals in their unprocessed form. Correct. But then yeah. once um, like industrialization started processing foods a lot more, it was stripping them of those vitamins and minerals. And so then this program was basically like, okay, let's go add those back in again. Mm-hmm. So they were adding the B vitamins to flour. Um, But now everything really went into speed drive because everyone was really freaked out about the poor quality of most Americans' diets. Um, The milling industry transitioned to enriched flour and bread products pretty much voluntarily uh, before mandates were even handed down in 1943. And uh, just as a quick aside about like people generally being freaked out, there also seemed to be a widespread PSA style warning campaign that was like freaking people out about vitamin deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So journalists, government agencies, and home economists focused on general dietary guidelines linking specific food groups to essential nutrients. Mm -hmm. So it's not like telling people like get this vitamin or whatever. It's just telling them like this is the food you should eat. Which I I will say for... Um, for, for people who probably aren't planning on getting super deep into nutritional science, I think that's probably a good way to go about it. Right. Um, like if, if you tell someone like, Hey, eat more vitamin K, uh, then the next question they'll have is just like, Hey, what foods are rich in vitamin K? Exactly. So if you're concerned that people are under consuming vitamin K, you can say, Hey, yeah, try to eat some more of these foods that are rich in vitamin K. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me just from a, from a messaging perspective. Definitely. So yeah, it made sense for them to be recommending food groups, but how they started communicating the importance was by showing these really disturbing like before and after photos of vitamin-deprived lab animals. Mm-hmm. So they would show a deformed, underweight, really sick-looking vitamin-deprived rat as an after they also used like chicks guinea pigs and pigeons and juxtapose that against pictures of the well-fed healthy before rats like before they were deprived of vitamins mm-hmm. which is scary yeah and of course the information was aimed at women who are primarily responsible for shopping planning meals and cooking for their families so it's like really scaring people and 
like communicating like you better cook a nice meal for your family or else your kids are going to look like these sick rats and it's your fault and it's your yeah. fault yeah exactly yeah that I, of course like of course that's going to freak people out but you know there there's always i think like a a consideration of like how important messaging is and like how much you want to freak people out yeah um cuz yeah if, if something is like really crucial like maybe maybe that serves a productive purpose um but yeah it, it sounds like it, it sounds like regardless of the intention behind it like that that would probably uh cause quite a bit of concern i would think so yeah. so the 1940s also came with an expansion of the recommended food groups in an attempt to help people get those vitamins and minerals the new standard was called the basic seven and I just wanted to talk about this really quickly because I just think this is a funny food group mm -hmm. um, standard. So the seven food groups, one, green and yellow vegetables, two, oranges, tomatoes, and grapefruit, three, potatoes and other vegetables and fruit, four, milk and milk products, five, meat, poultry, fish, or eggs, six, bread, flour, and cereals, and seven is butter and fortified margarine. Hell yeah. Like an entire food group for butter. That rocks. And also just the <laughs> classification of potatoes and other fruits and vegetables, like mm -hmm. potatoes being so big that they get like their own call out there, and then they're just tacking on and other fruits and vegetables. So I will say... Potatoes are very good. Um, they they are uh, relative to to the time when when this was being put out. Mm -hmm. So this was like what early nineteen forties, right? Right. So this was kind of during or near the tail end of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And so, in addition to like insufficient micronutrient consumption, there were also issues related to just total calorie intake. Because um, this was also relatively soon after the Dust Bowl uh, as well, which which is where a lot of crops were lost in the in the Midwest because of over farming, yeah, um, and then like high winds and just kind of a, a a perfect storm for for crop failures, and so there were general food shortages, and potatoes rock just as a source of of calories that and general sense. nutrition. Um, I believe potatoes. I think you can get about four times as many calories per acre of potatoes than you can from uh, like any other staple crop mm -hmm. like wheat or corn or rice or whatever. Right. Um, like it's it is a hefty difference. So um, and also if memory serves, I think potatoes deplete the soil less rapidly than other um, like staple crops do. Probably so. Yeah. And so. For the time period, uh, recommending increased potato intake when you're when you're in an era where a lot of farmland had just been lost due to depletion, um, and there was just like general widespread undernutrition. Um, yeah, like recommending people eat potatoes is pretty clutch. And I also think that there is sorry for for going off on this. Oh tangent no, about this potatoes. is interesting. I um, love potatoes, but. So there used to be a stigma against potatoes. Like it, it was, what? yeah, so it was, um, I, I think a lot of it had to do with attitudes of like class perception mm -hmm. um, because since potatoes were so cheap and plentiful, they were uh, 
they they were in fact and were also perceived to be kind of the food of the underclass and so now i don't think they have that same kind of stink attached to them like yeah everyone likes potatoes they're delicious uh but it used to be that a lot of folks would just kind of avoid potatoes because they're like ah that's that's poor people food like that's that's not what you eat if you're doing better for yourself mm-hmm. um so having a government recommend like hey no like potatoes are good and we're going to call them out as like basically their own food group and yeah like try to eat some potatoes um it, it probably helped at least a little bit with with some of those perceptions saying that like hey p- potatoes can be a food for everyone you know <laughs> it's a pr campaign for potatoes yeah of of all of the things that could Seems get like a pr campaign like i think potatoes deserve it potatoes yeah, rock that's true so, unfortunately, the, these seven food groups lasted for about 20 years. By the 1960s, though, the number of food groups had been reduced to four much more boring categories, milk, vegetables and fruit, meat, and breads and cereal. And just for comparison, um, I was interested to see like how this differed from what the core elements of a healthy diet are in the most recent guidelines. And right now, it's... Uh, six categories so one vegetables of all types two fruits especially whole fruit three grains at least half of which are whole grain four dairy five protein foods which includes lean meats poultry and eggs um, but also includes like vegan um, protein like beans lentils nuts seeds and soy products and six is oils including vegetable oils and oils and foods that makes sense. So I want to go back to talking about the RDAs. Mm-hmm. And this is going to lead us into our discussion for today. So those first guidelines in the 40s only included the one reference value for the RDA. Mm-hmm. And because the allowances were meant to provide superior nutrition for military personnel... They included a pretty large margin of safety as well. So even though this guidance was a positive step forward, there were still a lot of questions about, you know, consumption of vitamins and minerals, how much you actually need. Mm -hmm. There was little information about the lower or upper bounds. So you might know the RDA for something, but you don't know how far below or above the RDA you can go before it's actually like dangerous. So that applies both on an individual level and on a population level for people hoping to conduct studies to determine rates of inadequacy and seeing if like things were improving at all. Mm -hmm. The RDAs were revised every five to 10 years after the 40s. And in the early 50s, USDA nutritionists created guidelines for serving sizes for food groups. So knowing how many servings of a food you'd need to achieve your RDA was likely very helpful. It's kind of wild that that wasn't included from the start. I'm glad that they got on that like relatively quickly. Well, yeah, and, and it's just a practical way to address that problem because it's not like yeah, it's not like everyone had like a, a smartphone and mobile app that they could like exactly. track their nutrition <laughs> yeah, on yeah, down like, to the how gram. How would you know? You yes. would have no idea. Yeah, so if, if you want to eat enough, they're just like, hey, eat like three cups of right whatever and yes like, okay like i can i can wrap my head around that and actually like quantify it exactly yeah it's necessary but it was still just the one number still just the rda for 50 years uh i thought i was really surprised by this the first use of 
three dietary reference values wasn't until 1991 in the UK. Damn. So that is like a full 50 years after we got RDAs for the first couple of vitamins and minerals. Um, so these included a lower level. The three, the three reference values included a lower level at which deficiency would be considered to exist in almost all an average requirement and a higher level that would be adequate for almost all in the age and sex group to which it pertained. Mm-hmm. From there, the DRI framework, which is what we're going to talk about next um, in the U.S., was conceptualized in 94, introduced in 97, and tweaked over the next 10 years or so. In 2011, they revised the DRI values for calcium and vitamin D. Mm-hmm. In 2019, they revised for sodium and potassium. And just earlier this year, they released revised values for energy. But none of the other DRIs have been revised since first published between 97 and 2001. I, I will note that is in the U.S. context. Uh, in Europe, the, yes. the EFSA yeah. is much more consistently like rolling out updates and stuff. That's good. The U like the DRI is what US and Canada use from what I understand and they they're struggling. <laughs> there are tons of issues related to funding and political will, methodology and cooperation between the governments who are using this framework. But this stuff is really important and there needs to be a plan for updating it. Obviously, it's important for formulating dietary guidance, but there are a lot of other critical health applications that depend on the DRIs in the U.S. and Canada. Um, So guiding the design of health programs used by the VA, federal hospitals and nursing homes, many civilian health facilities as well. Mm -hmm. Guiding the design of healthier federal nutrition programs like school meals, WIC and SNAP. Uh, DRIs are also used for dietary counseling in hospitals, long t- long-term care facilities, and prisons for ensuring nutrient needs are met for armed forces, which, you know, was where this all started. Yeah, callback. Yeah, and providing a framework that is used by many other countries and international organizations when setting their own standards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these things are dependent on DRIs that are not being updated and it seems like there's really no plan in place for them to be able to update them. Yeah, I, I think um I, I think in your initial kind of like longer form notes on this section, you you noted that uh yeah, like like you said, there as far as anyone can tell, there's not sort of like wheels turning or like gears in motion for exactly. improving this, which um just as just as a general note for for listeners, uh, I mentioned this in the last episode, but um, we have some written content on the Macro Factor website about micronutrients and and all of that stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll link that again in the show notes. But in I believe the first article in our micronutrient series on the website, um, I link to I, I link to kind of like a post mortem of the. Um, Ah, what would you call it? Like, like co- collegium or whatever. Like the, the group of people that got together to put together the first DRIs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they made a post mortem, which was just kind of going through uh, issues they ran into with the process of generating the DRIs, uh, gaps in the literature, and ways that like the framework could be improved and um, recommendations could be improved 
in future iterations. And as far as I can tell, like they, they, they did all of this work to put together a postmortem to do a better job next time. Yeah. And lay a foundation. And it's now it's been like 20 years. Oh, and as far no. as we can tell, there's, there's not a next time, uh, anywhere on the horizon, which, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, though I should note, uh, as, as mentioned a second ago, uh, European health agencies are much more on top of this. The the EFSA like is um is is doing a better job of like reevaluating the evidence on a rolling basis and putting out more updated reports. Um I don't think there is still like as much ongoing original research as there was in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, which which was kind of like the heyday of like micronutrient specific research. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of like rolling updates to the guidelines, uh, we, we, we kind of kicked it off. Like we, we were the ones who made the DRI framework, which Europe um, was heavily inspired by with their DRV framework, but they, they are the ones who uh, seem to be doing a much better job of carrying that torch. Right. Well, and the UK was the first to introduce the three values as well yeah which, so they've yeah which was influential in kind of generating the dri framework to begin with yeah um so with that out of the way let's talk about the dri framework okay and uh all all of the different micronutrient kind of targets and values that we'll be talking about this episode mm-hmm. and what they mean where they come from yep so uh yeah there there are a lot of acronyms we're going to talk about uh and i I apologize uh, about that a little bit, but it's kind of unavoidable. Like if, mm-hmm. if you're digging into research on this topic, you will come across these acronyms. It, it's just basic stuff you have to be aware of. Most people are really only aware of RDAs, and they're not even that aware of what RDAs actually mean or imply. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, just as a general note before I dive into this, there are two different sets of acronyms, and I will tell you both of them, but otherwise I'm going to stick to the American terms, just because like over half of our podcast listeners are from the U.S., um, but also the frameworks map one-to-one onto each other, mm-hmm. so... Uh, yeah, when, for example, like when I say DRV or DRI, just think DRV. Or when I say RDA, just think PRI. Um, so yeah, it, it should make sense as I get into it. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, to start with, DRI, that stands for Dietary Reference Intake. Uh, and DRIs refer to just all of the scientifically derived reference values for various nutrients. In other words, uh, DRI is the general term used to describe all of the other nutrient targets and kind of signposts that I'm about to discuss. Mm -hmm. Um, The European version of DRI is DRV, which stands for Dietary Reference Value. Um, Probably the anchor point for the DRI framework, which again is is very rarely discussed, um, at least to the public, uh, is the EAR which stands for Estimated Average Requirement. Uh, the, the European version of that is AR, which just stands for Average Requirement. Um, and EARs are, are pretty self-explanatory. Um, name is Estimated Average Requirement, and guess what it is? It is the Estimated Average Requirement for each particular nutrient. Um, and 
So for each nutrient, about half of individuals would need to consume a little bit more than the EAR for kind of optimal health and to make sure they're meeting their nutrient needs. And about half of individuals can probably get away with consuming a little bit less than the EAR. Um, assuming that the intake needs for each nutrient are normally distributed, which most of the time they are. Um, and for what it's worth, I suspect a lot of people think that RDAs are communicating the information that EARs are actually communicating. Yeah. Um, in other words, I think people broadly view RDAs as like the average requirement of nutrients, um, but as I am literally just about to talk to, they are not. Yeah. The actual average requ requirement is is the EAR. So what is the RDA? Like that's the big one that most people are aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, or in a European context, the PRI, which stands for Population Reference Intake. Uh, RDA stands for Recommended Dietary Allowance. Um, and so, yeah, like j just about everyone will at least have a passing familiarity with RDAs or at least be aware of that term. Um, as, as mentioned before, standard food labels pre present micronutrients in reference to their RDAs. And um, yeah, rather than being the average requirement for a nutrient, you can you can think of the RDA as kind of a better safe than sorry micronutrient target. Right. Uh, they're designed to meet the needs of 97 to 98% of the population. In statistical terms, uh, you, you estimate the needs of, uh, like the average needs of a particular nutrient for the general population. You calculate the variability uh, of those needs. Like, mm -hmm. you know, some people will need more, some people will need less. Right. Calculate that standard deviation. And then the RDA is just two standard deviations above the mean. Right. Which should cover, again, like 97.5% yeah. of people. It's that margin of safety that I talked about because it was developed for military personnel. Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, all of which is to say... It's it's a good number to shoot for. Like if most sure. if most people are meeting the RDA for a particular nutrient, like there's only like a two ish percent chance that they might need to consume a little bit more, versus um, you know th there there will be a very low chance that they'll wind mm -hmm. up with like insufficient nutrient status. Um, but it is also the case that most people can probably get away with consuming less than the RDA, kind of like by definition. Right. Because it's a number that's two standard deviations above the mean uh, and and still be broadly okay. Mm -hmm. The inverse of uh, the RDA or PRI, and, and this is one where Americans and Europeans agree on an acronym. Nice. Is the LTI or lower threshold intake. And uh, yeah, so LTIs are basically the inverse of RDAs. RDAs are two standard deviations above the mean. LTIs are two standard deviations below the mean. Um, and so, yeah, like about 95% of individuals will have intake requirements for each nutrient somewhere between the LTI and the RDA, mm -hmm. with the EAR kind of being the average midpoint there. Okay. Um, and so LTIs you can think of as kind of like the bare minimum you should aim to consume. Like right. there's there will be a pretty good chance that you will do better if you consume more than the LTI. And also a very good chance that if you're consuming less than the LTI for a particular nutrient, um, you will probably wind up with, with overall insufficient intake and probably feel a little better if you consume a bit more. Um, 
So that is that is kind of like the core of the DRI framework. Mm-hmm. You have the EAR as the average, RDA two standard deviations above the mean, LTI two standard deviations below. Yeah. So um, you have like a range there. Correct. Which is really helpful instead yeah. of trying to shoot for an RDA, which is probably more than you need already and might be discouraging to shoot for. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then that begs the question of what do you do with nutrients where you don't actually have enough research to determine the average needs mm-hmm. uh, or certainly don't have enough research to calculate the ver- the, the inter-individual variability in terms of needs for that nutrient. Yeah. Uh, and for that, you have the AI, which, again, this is a shared acronym between the U.S. and Europe. That stands for adequate intake. Um, and AIs are kind of similar to RDAs or PRIs or sometimes EARs or ARs, uh, kind of depending on, as I'm about to talk about, they're, they're kind of a mess sometimes and okay. don't always communicate the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, but they're... They're supposed to function like kind of similarly to RDAs most of the time, uh, but mm-hmm. they are kind of a bit less scientifically rigorous. Mm-hmm. So essentially to calculate in EAR and then by extension um, uh, in RDA or an LTI, you need a, a certain amount and quality of evidence to actually be able to calculate and quantify those things. Um, so if a nutrient only has an AI, what that means is that they are confident that it is an essential nutrient and you need to consume some amount of it for good health. Right. But the research is insufficient to actually like un- understand and describe mm-hmm. the the spectrum of needs for that right. nutrient. Um, so AIs sometimes communicate slightly different things. The way that they're typically set is researchers will study the dietary patterns of people who are apparently healthy and who aren't experiencing the negative effects that you would experience if you were consuming an inadequate amount of that nutrient. Um, And then you just look at the average intake of that nutrient in that population and you say, well, it appears to be adequate. That is the (laughs) adequate intake. Like, that, that might sound too simplistic, but that is how most AIs are set. Right. Um, but there are sometimes other ways that they could be set. So sometimes ARs are set based on the lowest observed intake at which no signs of insufficiency are observed in a population. So mm. it would be kind of like the a similar setup to what I was talking about before. You take an apparently healthy population... Um, you look at the intake of that nutrient in the population, but instead of looking at the average uh, intake in that apparently healthy population, mm-hmm. you kind of look at like how low the lowest intake is in that apparently healthy population right. and say, well, these, these people are consuming this amount. They seem to be fine. So that is it probably an adequate amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's defined in reference to some other external standard. Um, so that is the case, for instance, uh, for calcium intake targets for infants, um, that is an AI instead of like a EAR, RDA, LTI type of deal. Okay. Um, in, in part, just because like there's kind of, <laughs> there's kind of a, a moral imperative <laughs> of like, if you think that a baby is malnourished, like instead of taking a second to 
observe them and yeah what, and try to understand it's just like no like it's give, important to just give, give nourish them, give them. them calcium right like, this is this is critical we yeah. need to get on this pretty quick yeah. um it's like the the ai for calcium intake for babies is uh defined in reference to the calcium intake they would receive if they were exclusively fed breast milk. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that's how kind of how much for how much calcium is put in infant formula right. is determined. Makes sense. It's like, well, they're like nature figured it out. So we'll just do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like breastfed babies seem to be fine. Like they seem, we, we assume they're getting enough calcium. We certainly hope so. <laughs> so that seems to be an adequate amount. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's how the AI is defined there. Um, so yeah, in other words, like the exact like information that is like implied and communicated by an AI differs from nutrient to nutrient to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the functional takeaway is the same. Um, y- you have an AI because there's not enough research to define an EAR and RDA. Um, but if you consume the AI, like there's a very good chance that you will be consuming enough of that particular nutrient, which is why I said like, functionally you can think of them as pretty similar to the rda because that's broadly what rdas are are communicating as well uh and then the final acronym to talk about is the ul which is also a shared acronym between both the american and european frameworks and ul stands for tolerable upper intake level Mm -hmm. um and so not every nutrient has a ul for some nutrients there are no known drawbacks of consuming a lot of that particular nutrient. Mm -hmm. So uh, for instance, a lot of the B vitamins fall into this category. It's like, uh, I don't want to throw out any specific one because I I don't want to fuck it up. (laughs) Like, like I know that there's a UL for vitamin B6, for instance, as Uh I discussed in the last episode, but like, I think that like thiamine, for instance, I think if you just consume a lot of it, your body just excretes the excess. So kind of like, who cares? We don't need this. Um, Yeah. And I, I I hope that's the case for vitamin B12. I assume it is because like some people like mega dose the shit out of vitamin B12 and seem broadly fine. So so yeah, like not every <laughs> vitamin or mineral has a UL, but yeah. but a lot do. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, what it is communicating is the amount that you can consume on an ongoing basis and have very low risk of negative effects related to overconsumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bit of a margin of safety built into the UL as well, depending on the severity of um, the severity of the consequence yeah. of consuming too much. That makes sense. Uh, and also a, a margin of safety built in based on like the quality of the research supporting the UL. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just for instance, um, like vitamin C, mm-hmm. if you consume too much vitamin C, you just kind of get an ouchy tummy. Like maybe you get some nausea, maybe you get a little diarrhea, but like it's water soluble. Like you'll you'll poop for a day or two and then uh-huh. broadly be fine. Like it's, yeah. it's not going to cause any lasting damage. Um, but excess vitamin A intake can be lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, like you you consume too much and you die or if you don't consume enough to die it could cause like pretty severe liver damage um and so yeah the the degree of safety is is determined in part by 
kind of the severity of those consequences. Right. And and like I said, also the the level of evidence supporting them. So there are two other um, just just broad concepts to be aware of here. One is the no adverse effect level uh, for a particular nutrient, which is often determined by like case studies where, um, yeah, like like what is, what is the largest amount of a nutrient that we see people regularly consuming and just never having issues with it? Or if you don't have like a, a rigorously quantified no adverse effect level, you might have a lowest observed adverse effect level, which is like almost always kind of defined by case studies mm -hmm. or sometimes animal research, which is then extrapolated. And uh, so that's that's essentially just like what is what is the least amount of a nutrient that we see uh, someone at some point consuming and having an adverse yeah. event that we are very confident we can trace back to overconsumption of the nutrient versus something else. Um, and yeah, so n like the amount of evidence like supporting a no adverse effect level or a lowest observed adverse effect level, um, and also like where that evidence is coming from, is it based on a larger population study? Is it coming from just like a handful of little case studies or is it extrapolated from animal research? All of those things will determine how much of a margin of safety is built into the UL. So, like, for instance, with vitamin C, I think the UL is kind of like, kind of right below the lowest adverse effect level. Yeah. Where it's like, if, if you, and I think it's, if memory serves, it's 2,000 milligrams, maybe 1,000 milligrams, whatever. Don't take that to the bank. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, if you consume a little more than that like if if you do have have the absolute temerity to overconsume vitamin c we don't need to build in that much of a margin of safety because like you're not going to be fine yeah you're not going to be that negatively affected yeah. by it um versus something like vitamin a yeah where the consequence of overconsumption can be very very serious there's a much larger margin of safety built in where um like the the ul for vitamin a is 3000 micrograms per day which is like really high for most diets mm -hmm. but is also like kind of low if you consume a decent amount of liver mm. so like a single serving of uh like raw beef liver um which i, I assume you'll cook first but like a 100 gram <laughs> serving of raw beef liver depends um yeah who knows i mean you probably there's a, should there's a whole king there's a whole king about eating raw liver i i guess so uh but yeah like a 100 grams of raw beef liver contains like 5,000 micrograms of vitamin a mm -hmm. which is notably above the ul um but the ul is communicating like the amount that you could consume uh for an extended period of time, right. even if you're at a high risk of like deleterious effects of overconsumption, while like very, very likely being safe. Yes. And so, for instance, like most people could probably have like a serving of liver a day and be fine because there's a large margin of safety built into that UL. Yeah. They don't so, want people bumping up against that top right. number. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, there is like a chronic consumption uh, uh, aspect of this. So like if you wanted to kill yourself by consuming like an acute toxic dose of vitamin <laughs> A, 
that generally requires like close to a hundred thousand micrograms, like somewhere between like seventy and a hundred thousand micrograms, yeah. which is way higher than the three thousand microgram UL. Mm-hmm. Um, and chronic toxicity also is generally observed when people are eating around 10 times the RDA per day. So like 7,000 to 9,000 micrograms per day. It's like the the UL for vitamin A is like around one third of the amount that people typically are consuming if they have chronic toxicity and like one thirtieth of the amount that people would typically need to consume for acute toxicity. Mm-hmm. But since you know, like vitamin A toxicity has such severe consequences, they do build in a pretty large margin of safety there. Um, so yeah, like like ULs do communicate slightly different things for different nutrients. Yeah. But, but by and large, it's saying like, hey, if you if you consume less than this per day, even if you're at high risk of negative effects of overconsumption, there's a very, very good chance you'll be fine. Right. But by extension... Um, if you like slightly consume, like go over the UL for a particular nutrient one day, you don't need to call poison control. Like you'll, you'll probably be fine. Yeah. So yeah, just, just treat it as kind of a soft limit where if you absolutely blow the fuck past it, maybe you need to be a little concerned if you just kind of exceed it a little bit from time to time, like it's probably okay, but try not to do that. Mm -hmm. Like that's. That is broadly how I would interpret a UL. Um, so yeah, uh, let's see. So kind of like circling back, um, just just to kind of recap this discussion mm-hmm. of all of these acronyms. Um, nutrition labels, what what they report and like exclusively what they report is um, nutrient content of a food relative to the RDA. And RDAs are the values that are drilled into our heads. Um, and that that does make sense from a public health perspective. Yeah. Like you, it, it might lead to some unnecessary degree of concern because like by definition, most people don't need to consume all the way up to the RDA. And so it might, it might make some people like a little bit neurotic uh, where it's like, oh no, like I'm a little under my RDAs. Like, is, is that going to cause nutrient deficiencies right. or whatever? Um, but it's also the case that like most people don't need to know this entire framework. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way that, that these DRIs are often communicated does does lend itself to to an unnuanced understanding of this stuff where, where a lot of people... Uh, might think that like, oh, if I am below the RDAs, I am therefore deficient in that nutrient, which is like very, very often not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, or conversely, like if I go over the RDA, like, oh no, I'm over consuming it. Like that's also bad, which also is typically not the case. Like there, there for most nutrients, there is like a very large gap between the RDA and the UL. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like I, I just wanted to communicate all of that stuff like this th- this may feel a little bit overkill to go through what all of these DRIs mean but i think it is useful just just to understand a typically how how little is communicated to us Definitely. about micronutrient needs and two like just so you'll have a a stronger 
like mental framework for understanding the span of, of nutrient needs, um, kind of both on an individual and population level, and how to think about each one of those DRIs. Okay, Greg, now that you've discussed what the DRIs are communicating, will you talk a little bit about the process for determining these targets? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, as I was writing the website content for Macro Factor about this stuff, this was something that I dug into for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I I personally found it quite interesting. So hopefully you will as well. Um, So yeah, there is generally a three-step process to determine kind of like the DRI framework and and targets for a particular nutrient. And the first step is determining the appropriate analytical endpoint to analyze in the first place. So that could be a different analytical endpoint for different nutrients. So it could be, for instance, the balance of a nutrient within your body. So the the example I'm about to provide, I'm going to talk about calcium. And so like the DRIs for calcium are based on calcium balance studies. So um, how much calcium is excreted relative to consumption at different levels of calcium intake. Mm. Like that is is one way that uh, it might be determined. Um, Another way might be blood biomarkers. So for instance, if you know that a a particular circulating level of a particular nutrient in your blood is what is either causative of or like associated with the health outcome you're interested in. You might look at those those blood biomarkers, either of nutrients or just like something else that is influenced by the nutrient. Um, or it might just be symptomology. So you look at how much of a particular nutrient people need to consume to not exhibit the symptoms that result from underconsumption of that mm. nutrient. Mm-hmm. Those are those are kind of most of the broad categories of analytical endpoints that folks would look at to kind of start determining uh, EARs, RDAs, LTIs. Um, but yeah, that's the first step, just determine that analytical endpoint. The second step is to analyze the data. So the folks who come up with these targets by and large are kind of doing a systematic review uh, and and or meta-analysis of research that has already been published. Um, Usually they are not going and doing original research for themselves Mm -hmm. to determine this stuff. Um, So yeah, like typically um, this is going to start with a meta-analysis of studies that are directly relevant to the selected analytical endpoint. so it might be the results of multiple depletion-repletion studies, which I believe I mentioned in the last episode, and I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, or it might be the results of multiple nutrient balance studies, for instance. Um, and I'll, I'll use calcium as an example here. So um, the, the RDAs and LTIs and EARs for calcium are determined by calcium balance studies. Um, instead of kind of like looking at like population levels of calcium intake relative to say osteoporosis risk, which could be confounded by any number of things, or just kind of give you a bad snapshot. Like if if you look at people's calcium consumption, say every five years and then osteoporosis risk late in life, like who knows how their intake changed over time or who knows if like the survey data was like actually representative of their intake at the time. Like there, there's a lot of 
kind of analytical challenges there. Whereas ultimately what you're interested in with calcium for the most part is just calcium balance. Like how, how much calcium are people actually retaining? That gives you a really good indication of, you know, are they are they preserving bone? Are they gaining bone? Are they losing bone? And, and that's mostly what you're interested in with calcium. Um, so yeah, the way calcium balance studies work is they just analyze calcium intake versus excretion. Mm -hmm. Monitoring intake is simple enough. You just monitor the food and beverages people consume, you know, the calcium content of those foods and beverages, bada bing, bada boom, you know, intake. Monitoring excretion is also straightforward, although it's a little bit gross. So you consume calcium, your body absorbs a lot of it, doesn't absorb all of it. Yep. Um, and some of it passes through your digestive tract and you poop it out. Uh, and then once it's absorbed, um, you know, maybe some of it isn't directly utilized in bone formation or maybe some bone breakdown, just bone turnover is taking place. You have excess calcium that needs to be excreted. You do that in your urine. So you monitor food intake, you collect poop, you collect urine, you look how much calcium is going in and you look at how much calcium is going out. Yep. And from that, you can determine, are people in net positive calcium balance or net negative calcium balance? Um, and so, yeah, for, for determining the EAR and by extension, RDA and LTI for calcium, um, you look at all of the studies that have analyzed calcium balance. And then you're essentially just kind of looking for the point at which calcium balance is on average neutral. And that would be your EAR. And then you calculate the variability of calcium needs in order to attain a neutral calcium balance. And so two standard deviations above that, you would put the RDA. Two standard deviations below that, or uh, below the EAR, you would put the LTI. And uh, that's about it. Like that's, that is that first step to kind of build in that margin of safety. Um, and I will just note that for a lot of nutrients, maybe most nutrients, um, the results can vary quite a bit study to study. Like mm -hmm. it, oftentimes the data is somewhat murky and, and you might be able to find like an individual study with like hundreds of individuals that would, re that would support a much lower RDA mm -hmm. or uh, again, like large well-powered studies um, that would support like a much higher RDA. Hmm. And it's not always clear why you're seeing different results in those studies. Um, so like it is sometimes a little bit murky and I'll, I'll link this in the show notes as well. Um, like you, I, I used this calcium illustration in one of the website articles, uh, as well. And there is like a graph that's kind of like the output of this, of this meta-analysis on calcium balance studies, which was then used to determine, uh, like in, in this case, the, the like PRI and AR, cause like this was a, a EFSA publication. Yep. Um, but like you, you can see for yourself the data that those targets are based on uh -huh. and like, yeah, j just check it out for yourself and like imagine that like the trend lines and like error lines weren't present and it just looks like it's all over the place. Well, yeah, like, like check it out and try to determine for yourself. Like if, <laughs> if you would be like extremely confident at, at what those figures should be. And I suspect that will not be the case. Yeah. Ugh, um, that seems so stressful trying to determine a value or a set of values based on that. Yeah. I, I mean, like, 
I, I will say, I think based on what EARs and, or well, ARs and PRIs mm-hmm. and whatever are supposed to communicate, I think they did like absolutely the best job they could with mm-hmm. the data that existed. But it's just like the data that exists. Like, like sometimes you look at a data set and like what it is telling you is just fucking crystal clear. Right. Oftentimes with these nutrient targets, it it's not. Like mm-hmm. it is a little bit murky. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense. But like we talked about last episode, when you see those exact figures, you're like, oh, it must have been extremely obvious. Like mm-hmm. why they set these figures as it is or as they are. Like the data must be extremely clear on this. Yeah. And nope. No, I I would not say that it is. <laughs> um, and, and calcium is an example of a nutrient that there is like quite a bit of research on. Um, oh yeah, so because it, it, it was it was one of the OGs that like FDR right. was worried yeah. about. There ha- there has been a lot. Osteoporosis has been a public health concern for a long time. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of research on calcium. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's. There, there are like kind of some judgment calls to make with calcium. Yeah. There, there are even more judgment calls to make with nutrients that just have less research on them. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, that, that's step two. You, you kind of collect and analyze the data that's been published. Um, and then step three, you kind of have like final adjustments and rounding. Um, so like, for instance, with calcium balance studies, there is like a little adjustment that needs to be made to kind of the the results of that meta-analysis because because those calcium balance studies monitor intake, but they only monitor excretion from urine and feces. Yeah. But you also lose a little bit of calcium in your sweat, which... Ugh, so complicated. Yeah. And, and also like researchers aren't going to collect every drop of sweat from... They need those individuals suits that they wear, dude. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like you <laughs> they could, can, but yeah, they're yeah, not like going you, to. You can do it for like a couple hours, but like you, you can't do that for days or weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you did, it might give you unrepresentative data because like those suits will probably make you sweat more. So it might give mm, you true. Like, an unrealistic understanding of how much calcium is lost in yeah. sweat. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah. So, it, anyways, like that—that that is just like data that is unaccounted for in the studies that are used to determine this stuff. Um, But we do know that in general, folks lose about 40 milligrams of calcium per day in their sweat. So they just kind of like looked at the data and they said, hey, we're just going to bump all of these numbers up by 40 because folks are losing about 40 more milligrams of calcium than what these studies are actually accounting for. Uh, And then, like I said, it's final adjustments and rounding. Um, So it's rounding because humans like, nice round numbers yeah. and once you add all of the adjustments like the the ar for calcium would have been 745 milligrams per day the rda would have been 944 uh people don't like that so it's just like hey pri it's 950 uh ar 750 mm-hmm. so yeah that's kind of the final process just just to wind up with numbers that humans like rather than numbers that aren't functionally different that that people won't like yeah um, and so, yeah, like, I think that, um, and, and I also think that like calcium does provide a pretty good illustration of how large the range of individual nutrient needs can be. Okay. So like in, in the U S for instance, I think the RDA for calcium's like a thousand milligrams per day, the, the PRI, um, for calcium, like in Europe, is, is 950 milligrams per day. Mm-hmm. And that is the number that is communicated to people. 
but the AR was 750, which is a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. And the LTI was like 550. Mm -hmm. So the total range from like the LTI to the RDA is like a 400 milligram per day range. And the art, the, the PRI is, is like not quite two X the LTI, but like it's relatively close. close. Like there, there is a big difference between 550 and 950. Yeah. Um, and like when you, when you look at the individual data that went into supporting that range, like there were folks who were in positive calcium balance consuming like five, 600 milligrams of calcium per day. Mm-hmm. And there were also a handful of people who were in negative calcium balance consuming like a thousand, 1100 milligrams per day. So mm-hmm. like there is a, a pretty big range there. And, um, I, I think people do find that a little bit surprising. Like, does, does that surprise you at all? Or, or like, did it surprise you when you encountered this for the first time? Yeah, definitely. I wonder, I mean, is it something that you're aware of as an individual? Like, is it usually linked to some sort of illness or um, something that you would be aware of if you went to a doctor or got blood work done or something? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, some people just have different needs and we're not really sure why? Oh, man. It would it would depend. Yeah. Like, person to person, nutrient to nutrient. Right. Um, cause yeah, like the, the impacts of like, well, you know, I think the impacts of like insufficient consumption, like not deficient, but like a little yeah. bit less than would be optimal. I think that they're like rarely obvious and like probably wouldn't show up without blood work most of the time. Um, and like in, in the case of calcium, like if you're not getting like a full, blood panel done or like getting a DEXA scan every year to look and see how like bone mineral density is changing. Um, you, you probably like, you might never find out. Yeah. So it's not like you're experiencing some sort of symptom that would make you think like, ah, I think I need more calcium. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Um, and the thing, the thing is like the, like there, there are a lot of people who can probably consume a little bit less of a nutrient than what their body theoretically needs for mm-hmm. like their entire life mm-hmm. and generally be fine. Um, so th- this is this is something that I was planning on talking a little bit more about in episode three. Okay, which is that like there is there is like a pretty stark difference between um, like insufficient intake and deficient intake of a particular nutrient. And, like, deficiencies are almost impossible to not notice. Because, like, they cause severe problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, in in the case of, like, if you have deficient calcium intake, that causes, like, pretty significant feelings of lethargy, um, like, pretty extreme, like, muscular fatigue and weakness. Um, Ah oh, man, like I said, I was planning on talking about this next episode, so I don't, I don't yeah, have everything talk about in my it next notes. Episode, yeah. No, no, it's it's fine. Like I'll I'll do a decent enough job here. <laughs> okay. Um, and and it can also just cause like heart attacks, like heart failure. Uh-huh. Um, because like calcium is important for like regulating heart rhythm. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, like if if it kind of comes on gradually, it may not be like immediately obvious that like, hey, I'm experiencing these things because I'm not consuming enough calcium or like I suddenly stopped consuming enough calcium. But 
there will be things that are like significantly wrong that would suggest to you like, hey, I should probably get this checked out. Um, and that that is typically the case for like deficient nutrient intake. Mm-hmm. Insufficient nutrient intake is usually like, you, you probably wouldn't even notice. And often the deleterious effects aren't even like guaranteed to happen to you in the first place. Um, and so like, for instance, I just talked about what would happen if you had like truly deficient calcium intake, kind of the worst impact of insufficient calcium intake, a a little bit less than your body needs, like kind of chronically putting you in negative calcium balance is you have an elevated, like you'll wind up with an elevated risk of osteoporosis, which is like, it's not something you want, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but that's also a, not something you're going to realize until you get like quite a bit older like it's it's not going to show up until like considerably Mm -hmm. down the line Mm -hmm. unless again like you're monitoring your bone mineral density every year and seeing Mm -hmm. like consistent decreases even in your 20s or 30s or or whatnot and also like the extent to which it increases your risk is fairly modest like um insufficient calcium intake i believe is associated with like a 10 percent increase in in osteoporosis risk which like isn't nothing. Mm-hmm. And like, I think more people than folks realize do get osteoporosis at some point in their yeah. lifetime. So it's it's not something where it's like, oh, it's a 10% risk going up from like 3% to 3.3%. Like it is, it is like in real terms, a pretty large increase in risk as well. But, you know, it it is something where like, until that happens, you, you probably wouldn't have any like external, um, like obvious signs mm-hmm. that you're not consuming quite enough. And again, it is like an a 10% increase in risk. It's not like a guarantee. Right. It's like there, there there will be a fair amount of people who like may have wound up with really high bone mineral density and then they for the rest of their life are in like slightly insufficient calcium consumption range and just never have a problem. They're just fine. From it. Yeah. 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 Um so yeah. Yeah. It is surprising. I it makes sense like you said when you think about it because you know, individual needs are present for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But I feel like with food and even more with vitamins and minerals, it does feel like we kind of think of our bodies as machines. And mm-hmm. it's like everybody needs the same amount. You just put that in and then you're fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Just, just got to change the oil. Right. Yeah. But it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And And I do think... I do think that is kind of intuitive once you kind of like sit down and think about it for a little bit yeah. more. Cause like, you know, the, the like nutrient labels might label total calorie needs in reference to a 2000 calorie standard. Mm-hmm. But w- once people start getting a little bit interested in nutrition, they realize like, Oh wait, no, like energy needs differ between individuals. If like you're small sedentary, like maybe you only need to consume 1500 calories a day if you're like large and like super highly active, like maybe it's four or 5,000 calories a day. Like there's an acknowledgement that there are pretty big ranges there. Um, and so like, I, I, I don't want to get too far out over my skis. I just want to state on the, fr- on the front end that like, I kind of assume that this is the case, but I'm not like positive that it is in terms of calcium needs. Like I kind of assume that it probably just relates to like how large your bones are. You know, yeah. like if, if you're a big person with a big frame and a lot of like a shitload of calcium in your bones, like 
I assume you probably need to eat more calcium <laughs> to maintain yeah, a positive sense. calcium balance. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll also note, like, a, as I mentioned before, like, the, the research on some of this stuff is, like, kind of murky. Like, there's, there is an acknowledgement that needs for these nutrients differ between individuals, but there's a little bit less research on why that is the case. And I suspect... I suspect a lot of it probably does just generally have to do with body size. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I kind of think that like smaller people who just they they have less stuff and like they <laughs> there's there's less stuff in them, you know, um, <laughs> less or, stuff in the beet sack. Or, or I mean, like for a more kind of like concrete example, a lot of the B vitamins are like coenzymes related to steps in the process of energy metabolism. Yeah. And, like, if you're just doing less energy metabolism mm -hmm. because you're burning less energy per day, I kind of assume you pro that's that might be a factor contributing to you your B vitamin needs being, like, below the EAR instead of above. Right. Um, but, yeah, there, there's there's just less research on that. And I, I kind of think if there was more and better research, you could probably have kind of, like, more granular and appropriate individual recommendations instead of just kind of like pointing everyone at the same kind of broad range yeah um and a range is even like more information that a lot of people get like like we've talked about most people really only think of it in terms of an rda yeah so thinking of it in terms of a range even if it's like a population level range is still like a step up and still helps you understand it a little bit better than just thinking about it in terms of this one value. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So kind of the, the key points here are that I, I think that like recommendation, like micronutrient recommendations I, are quite a bit less precise than I think a lot of people realize. Um, for for a couple of reasons, like the data is rarely super cut and dry. Mm -hmm. um, again, like I'll, I'll I'll refer you to the graph of kind of like how the calcium targets were determined. Um, like I, and, and I'm not trying to say that like this is all bullshit and people are doing a bad job. It's just that like it's there there is yeah like it there is just more inter individual variability and more just. Broad, general murkiness in the data that exists mm -hmm. than, I, than I suspect people assume. Yeah. Um, also, there are sometimes even disagreements about what analytical endpoints to focus on in the first place. Mm. Um, so like I mentioned, with calcium, they ended up going with calcium balance studies. But like a credible case could be made for um, like research, like, like more so focusing on research looking at calcium intake over a lifespan and like its relationship with osteoporosis risk okay like they decided against that for several reasons but yeah. like a a credible case could be made that like maybe right. that's that that is an endpoint you could look at instead and that's step one of the process yeah. is determining that analytical endpoint so mm -hmm. Then everything that flows down from there is based on this one thing that could have been different. Yeah. And what result would we have gotten if we had looked at a different endpoint? Yeah, yeah. And, and also, like, I, I am absolutely not implying they looked at the wrong analytical yeah, endpoint there. Like, 
based on what I know, I suspect calcium balance studies were the way to go. And also, like, I'm I'm not a, an expert on that. So, like, I assume they made a better choice than I would. But, like... I think th- it's just important to say, like, there are judgment calls th- here. There are judgment calls yeah. that have to be made. And there are people who are experts who don't always agree about mm-hmm. the judgment calls that yes. are made. Um Next thing is that there are like potential drawbacks just regarding the the general types of research that are used to generate DRIs. Um, So as I mentioned, sometimes they're based on like blood biomarkers, but it is not always exclusively the nutrient you're consuming itself that would influence blood biomarkers for that nutrient. So an example here is vitamin D. Blood vitamin D levels are certainly influenced by vitamin D intake, but they're also influenced by like how much time you spend outside, what latitude you live at, and the melanin content yep. of your skin. Like mm-hmm. how much just skin vitamin D you're synthesizing. Um, uh, and then like other nutritional factors can influence balance of particular nutrients. So like with calcium, they're looking at calcium balance studies, but vitamin D intake... Um, or like vitamin D levels influence calcium absorption and vitamin K levels or vitamin K intake influence calcium deposition into bones, which influences calcium balance. So like a lot of times the research is looking at a single variable like calcium intake versus calcium excretion. When there are other nutritional factors, even just like other micronutrients that could be influencing that, um, which, you know, then makes it like yeah it just like adds noise to kind of that single variable analysis of calcium intake versus excretion um and the last thing is is that for the nutrients where the analytical the analytical endpoint selected is like in is based on like acute findings it's not always completely obvious um, that acute findings would necessarily and inherently generalize to long-term outcomes. So um, this has been like a criticism and and just like criticism slash like discussion topic Mm -hmm. uh, for for decades, Um, like amongst the people who do this type of research. It's like a lot of the a lot of the, the micronutrient um, like DRIs are based on depletion repletion studies. And uh, so like I said, I'll, I, I said I would talk about that a little bit more. And the way that they tend to work is um, like, like sometimes with humans, sometimes with, with lab animals, you just like feed them a controlled diet that has none of a particular nutrient mm-hmm. um, for a while. And like, bad things start cropping up mm-hmm. and then you just kind of like titrate the dose back up or or you might have like multiple groups where it's just like hey this group we're going to give you like a quarter of what we think you need this group we're going to give you half this group we're going to give you three quarters whatever um so like it starts with with the depletion stage and then with the repletion what you're what you're looking at is kind of the average um amount of intake you need during that repletion stage to ameliorate ameliorate the problems that were caused by the depletion yes um and then the lti is kind of like hey where do we start seeing improvements being made rda is kind of like at what point is everyone fine and we've like fully rectified the issue and 
So, like, those are relatively acute studies. Um, like, they, they take place over a period of weeks or months, but, you know, you're eating food over a period of years, like your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily inherently obvious that the way your body would respond to acute, complete uh, depletion, like like zero consumption of a nutrient, and then it being reintroduced, there's there's no guarantee that your body would respond to that the exact same way as it would to just consuming a little bit less or a little bit more of a nutrient kind of forever. Right. Um, because yeah, like there there might be kind of compensatory mechanisms that would kick in if like you consumed say a little bit less vitamin A all the time. Like like I don't like I'm not saying that that is the case. I don't know what those compensatory mechanisms would be, but it, it very well could be the case that like hey, if you consume like maybe a little bit less vitamin A than what we think you should for months or years, like there like there are just physiological changes to that take place to like accommodate that and let you be fine and not experience issues with like slightly lower intake but not like complete deficiency mm-hmm. versus like in a depletion repletion study who knows like it might take weeks or months or years for those adaptations to happen um that wouldn't happen if you're just going through like a 2 to 4 week period of just consuming zero vitamin A um so yeah, like the um, like translating depletion repletion studies to the DRI framework is kind of like it is tacitly predicated on the on the assumption that those results would generalize. Um, but I think it's still an open question, like the extent to which they actually do generalize. So just like purely on like a research design basis, yeah. there there are still some open questions, um, and. Also, as, as mentioned before, like all of these considerations are just for the nutrients where we would consider there to be a lot of good data mm-hmm. to like determine EARs, RDAs, LTIs in the first place. As mentioned, like plenty of nutrients just have AIs, which inherently means that the research informing those nutrient targets uh, is less plentiful or lower quality. Um and as mentioned in the previous episode, the U.S. and Europe don't always even agree about which nutrients have enough data to kind of support the DRI or DRV framework versus just issuing AIs. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like um, in the U.S., there are uh, like RDAs and so by extension EARs as well for vitamin E and magnesium. In Europe, the EFSA looked at the same body of research and said, ah, no, there's there's not enough for that like we're just going to issue ais here um which kind of like goes back to uh discussion of like judgment calls like right. there isn't just judgment calls about analytical endpoints there's also judgment calls about like the level and quality of evidence that exists to determine which one of these frameworks we're pushing it into are we going the dri route or are we going the ai route um and uh another Another just like well-recognized issue with this framework is that it covers up and conceals um, a lot of messiness regarding like nutrient sources and bioavailability in the broader context of an individual's diet because they are like inherently and necessarily only looking at like the intake of a single nutrient as like a single variable. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you don't always 
uh, like absorb and utilize the same amount of a nutrient that you might consume from different sources. So like a classic example here is like uh, heme bound versus non-heme iron. So like your, your body has like hemoglobin, myoglobin proteins with like little iron in them. And most of the iron you consume from animal products is, is heme iron. Um, you know, now that I think about it, that might be a misnomer. Maybe it should be myo iron because it's mostly coming from myoglobin, not hemoglobin, but whatever, <laughs> who cares? Um, but yeah, so like the, the oral bioavailability of that is higher than most sources of non-heme uh, iron, yeah. like iron from plant sources that is either just like um, like mineral iron or just like incorporated into other proteins. Like your body does just generally absorb and, u- and utilize heme-bound iron uh, a little bit better. Um, and, th- and that's also the case for like, if, if you've looked into like mineral supplements, like, uh, differences in oral bioavailability are, are probably something you're well aware of. Like mm-hmm. the classic example is like mineral supplements that are oxides versus chelates. Like there's a huge difference in oral bioavailability. So if you just like go to Walmart and look at the cheapest calcium supplement you can buy, you'll see that it's probably calcium oxide i would assume and the oral bioavailability of calcium oxide is like below 10 percent. oh my gosh i think it's like two percent like it's it's basically a placebo pill jeez um but like uh, so people could be taking that thinking they're getting a certain amount of calcium and just like nope sorry yeah and i'll um let's see uh lindsay could you could you just make a note real quick for me to to google this um or just like search pubmed when we get done recording because i i do want to verify like make sure i'm yeah. not like because because i i know that oral bioavailability for oxides is really low but i, I want to make sure i'm not like totally underselling it and if i'm lying to you right now there there will be a note in the show notes okay hey just making a really quick correction here in post so with calcium in particular, um, generally you, you won't see calcium oxide in supplements. Uh, calcium carbonate is the more common version that you will see. Um, and in general, it seems like chelated forms of calcium do maybe have slightly better oral bioavailability than calcium carbonate does, but it is not nearly as big of a difference. Um, what I specifically had in mind was stuff that I had read about magnesium supplementation in particular. Uh, Magnesium oxide does have horrible oral bioavailability. We're talking like four or five percent. And that is generally true of minerals where you will find oxide forms in supplements, uh, but that does not apply to calcium. Uh, Like I said, uh, generally you'll see calcium carbonate, which again might not be quite as good as chelated forms, but is still uh, pretty good and does still have pretty decent oral bioavailability. Um, sorry for that error. And now back to the podcast. Um, but like oral bioavailability for oxides is in general considerably lower than like chelated versions of the same mineral, right? Which is just like the mineral bound to some other biomolecule, oftentimes mm. an amino acid. So okay. um, if you see like calcium or magnesium like citrate or aspartate or whatever like a word ending in eight, eight. um that's a chelated ver- or, or like um 
yeah, it doesn't like glycinate is is coming up more more often these days in supplement formulations. Doesn't matter. Like there there are like little differences in oral bioavailability between different like chelates of of various minerals, but usually it's just still like way way better than oxides. Uh-huh. Um, and I the differences between like different chelated forms usually isn't big enough to worry about uh, for the most part. But yeah, like if if memory serves, I I think the oral bioavailability for calcium oxide is like 4% and for uh, calcium citrate is like 45% oh or gosh. something. Um, like it's, it's a big difference. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like none of that is communicated in DRIs. Like if, if all of the calcium you consumed was from calcium oxide, who knows? Maybe the RDA for calcium would need to be like 30 grams a day or some shit like that. Yeah. But you know, for, from dairy products, the oral bioavailability is way higher. Um, and so like that's, yeah, that, that is inherently not communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, just other things in the foods you consume, as mentioned before, might positively influence absorption of a nutrient. So, like, vitamin D helping with calcium absorption. But they can also sometimes negatively influence absorption of a nutrient. So, I think there's been maybe a bit too much, like, scaremongering about, like, so-called anti-nutrients, yeah. um, like oxalates and phytates. And like I said, I, I think people make them sound scarier than they actually are. Um, but, like, the the fact that they do interfere with mineral absorption, like, is uncontroversially true. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, calcium, iron, magnesium, and zinc. So, like, you could you could potentially argue that, like, Foods with oxalates and phytates are fine. Like, you can eat them. But, like, if you eat a diet that is rich in foods that are high in oxalates and phytates, like, maybe you should try to consume a little bit more of some of those minerals than people who ate a diet lower in, in those things. And, like, oftentimes that goes hand in hand. Like, a lot of the... um like a lot of plants that are relatively rich in oxalates are also relatively mineral rich. So, like... It is a little bit easier oftentimes to consume a little bit higher levels of minerals if you are also eating like an oxalate or phytate rich diet. But uh, all, all, all of which is to say, once again, like that's not communicated in the DRI framework. Yeah. Um, How could it be? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, and so, yeah, like basically all of this stuff is like kind of messy. And I think yeah, messier than I realized before I started digging into it. And there's a lot of stuff that is not communicated in the single number uh, of the RDA that most people are aware of and pay attention to mm-hmm. almost exclusively. Um, and so, yeah, like, as we talked about with the last episode, when things are communicated in a single precise number, I think that gives the impression that the scientific consensus is also, like, simple and precise, like, that, mm-hmm. that is why it is justified to just give the single, like, precise recommendation. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case here. <laughs> yeah, not at all. However. Okay. However, here's here's kind of the rug pull for this segment. Ah. Um, that's kind of by design, and I think it's a good thing. Okay. Um, so it is, it is a negative in terms of if people get... If people see it and get overconfident and and read into an RDA like 
way more like nuance and precision and whatever than it actually has and and like they know the rdas for uh vitamins and minerals and assume that that means they know a lot about those things which relative to the general population you do like most people probably don't have those rdas like memorized Mm -hmm. but like relative to how much there is to know uh about all of this stuff like you don't know anything if that is all you're aware of and and think that it is like a super like precise single number that that applies equally to everyone um but for most people most of the time i actually think it's good um and that is because dris are supposed to primarily serve the purpose of being public health tools mm-hmm. and um especially as it regards to like communicating with the public as mentioned before like most people there's no reason they would need to know almost anything that I've talked about in this episode. Like mm-hmm. it wouldn't serve them hardly any purpose um, except for like maybe a little peace of mind, like not like freaking out if they're like a little bit below or a little bit above the RDA. But like, I don't think most people do freak themselves out about that. So like, <laughs> yeah, m- most of the time, like people just don't need to know more information than that. And typically like, I mean, I know this firsthand as someone who uh, has made a career in, in the long form content business. Like most people don't want long form content. Like it, if it's <laughs> if it's not something that's like directly like important and relevant to their lives, um, why spend two hours like doing a deep dive on a topic that a just a five minute little PSA gives you enough oh, for kind of man. moving through the world and in your day to day life. Dagger through the heart. Yeah, and so if if like all of the nuance and context for every nutrient target was communicated for every nutrient target for everyone all the time, yeah. the net result wouldn't be that people would end up knowing more about micronutrients. They would end up knowing less because they would look at it and say, I don't fucking care. Yes. And I'm not going to dig into this. They'd be like, that this. is way too much. Yeah. I Yeah, not and, doing this. And so what an RDA does by design is give you a single number where if everyone hit that number, like around 98% of people would not be, not only not deficient in any nutrient, but not even have insufficient intake of any nutrient. And that's a pretty powerful thing to be able to communicate in a single number. And when you're trying to communicate micronutrient intake needs to a population, ninety like in excess of 90% of which just like just don't care that much right if you can if you can get that one thing through their head of like hey if you if you reach this number you're good um like that that's great Mm -hmm. for most people most of the time um so yeah all all of which is to say um i think that for this podcast like if you're listening to this you Uh, are way more interested in and way more invested in this stuff than most people are and you like you you like knowing more you like doing deep dives uh, and understanding like context and nuance and all of that Um, and so what we want to do with this series is be able to provide that for you because like rounding up and like understanding all of this stuff for myself was even more time consuming than the total runtime length of, of this podcast <laughs> series will be. If you can imagine be. something um, longer than this podcast. Yeah. And, 
And I would at least like to think that this is a communication medium that is more pleasant and accessible than just like asking you to dive into like all of the EFSA reports for yourself. 100%. Um, but it's also like, yeah, like way overkill for almost everyone, almost all of the time. And, um, but yeah, if, if, if you're interested enough in this topic to be listening to this podcast, it is, I think the amount that you should know about this topic just to actually have like a an actually good understanding of it right yeah so don't let the messiness stress you out correct it was Um, starting to stress me out so i'm glad that you said that yeah like i one of one of my goals in life is just to make people less overconfident about things in general because i i think i think people are just very overconfident about shit that they have no no need to be yeah and um so yeah my my general approach to most things is i want to i want to knock that overconfidence down a peg mm-hmm. and then communicate to people that yeah like this is more complicated than you thought it was but most things are fine yeah you know um like of, yeah. oftentimes it's the net outcome is like you need to stress about this thing less not more mm-hmm. because if 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 like the the baseline assumption of like this is like super well supported and, and like crazy precise, if that was true, then uh, like a high level of stress and anxiety about not meeting nutrient RDAs would be extremely warranted. But since it is like kind of a little messier, kind of a little loosey goosey, like yeah, you yeah, a lot of people can go like a little bit below these. Most of the time, you can go considerably above, and like nothing too bad's gonna happen either way. Um, yeah, like it, it communicates uncertainty, but also hopefully a sense of calmness and peace of mind. Right. I hope. I think so. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think people who have like a high psychological need for closure um, and and like just needing to. I don't think those people high... are here. Oh, absolutely not. Like I've. I've I'm, I, I don't know where they are, but they're not here. I assume I've weeded them out <laughs> yeah. over the years, but. Anyway, this might not be good content for them, but uh, that's fine. That's that's not our target audience. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's move on. Kind of the big picture thing that we want to get across here is that nutrient guidelines are predicated on like cost benefit analyses. So it makes more sense. Again, like if you want to get into this deeper instead of just looking at RDAs. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense to think about micronutrient intake guidelines as ranges instead of exact targets. Mm-hmm. So instead of interpreting just the RDA as like the thing that everyone needs to hit all the time, no matter what, uh, or, you know, trying to be like sneaky and say like, ooh, well, well, not sneaky, but but clever and say like, ooh, that's actually two standard deviations above. Actually, the one number to pay attention to is the EAR. Like that's the actual average requirement let's just focus on that one number instead of doing any of that i think it just it just does make more sense to think about it as ranges yes where you you probably don't want to be below the lti like there's a pretty there's a very good chance that you will have insufficient intake if you're below it or if you're someone whose actual needs are closer to the rda being below the lti might actually cause like a deficiency not just an insufficiency so like yeah, you, you probably do want to be above the LTI and you 
some degree of concern might be warranted if your consumption of a particular nutrient is regularly below the mm -hmm. LTI. Things with things in the LTI to RDA range are generally like pretty okay. Mm -hmm. um, where like if you're a little below the EAR uh, without without like extra medical opinions or like blood work to like confirm stuff. Like if you're a little below the EAR, like between the LTI and EAR, it probably wouldn't hurt to consume a little bit more. But like your risk of nutrient deficiency is very low. Yeah. And as mentioned before, like it's not great to be insufficient in like have insufficient intake of particular nutrients. But like usually the actual kind of real world consequences of that aren't particularly serious mm -hmm. so yeah like if you're if you're between the lti and ear probably wouldn't hurt to try to eat a little bit more but you also i think probably generally don't need to be that stressed about it mm -hmm. if your intake is between the ear and rda like you're you're doing good like there's a very good chance you're consuming sufficient amounts or if you do just have like really high intake needs for a particular nutrient you'll only be like very slightly insufficient in that range so like Every, everyone's going to wind up with like pretty decent outcomes there. Uh, and then between the RDA and the UL is, is just like, is just good. Like you don't need to, con you, you don't need to be worried that you're exceeding the RDA for something and, and worrying that that's going to cause issues related to excessive intake if you're below the UL because ULs are calibrated to be safe and conservative. Um, but also like you probably shouldn't expect like additional great things to happen <laughs> if you're exceeding the RDA like on purpose and, and getting closer to the UL. Like everything within that range will probably have pretty similar outcomes. Like it, just just good, but you know, it's it's not gonna do anything like crazy or special and also not gonna be dangerous. Yep. Um and then above the UL, it's kind of a matter of like degree and risk tolerance. If you exceed UL's a little bit sometimes like you're probably fine if you're regularly exceeding them by a lot frequently for prolonged periods of time might cause problems mm -hmm. um and yeah like I, th I think that's just a good kind of like range-based framework to think about this stuff mm -hmm. um all right so i believe that is about it for the DRI framework and nutrient targets themselves. And the last little thing I have for this episode is uh, talking a little bit about micronutrient tracking um, and like micronutrient contents of foods. Okay. And um, so yeah, let's, let's get into it. So if you want to track your micronutrient intake. One of the things you should be aware of is that estimates of micronutrient intake that you would generate from logging your food and, and trying to track your, your nutrient intake that way are probably quite a bit more imprecise than you realize. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I think... I, I think like imprecision of nutrient intake tracking is something a lot of people are aware of if they spend a lot of time in like nutrition world or diet world, like the, the little factoid that like calorie counts or like macronutrient counts of foods 
uh, by law can be up to 20% off, like above or below. I think that's something that there is general broad awareness of. Um, and so I don't think anyone is going into it assuming that, that their tracking is like uber precise, like down to a tenth of a percent or whatever. Um, but I, I assume a lot of people don't recognize that like micronutrient tracking is considerably more imprecise than macronutrient tracking. Um, and that errors can not only be larger in an absolute sense, but can also be like kind of persistent for weeks or months at a time. So with macronutrients, oftentimes, and, and um, I, I wrote an article about this for Stronger by Science back in the day that, that will be linked in the show notes, but the, the little factoid that is true that calorie counts and micronutrient counts on food labels can be off by up to 20%, like ultimately like that doesn't end up mattering too much because like underestimates overestimates like they'll tend to balance out right um and also like if you um like especially with like energy intake if if say you eat a diet where just everything you you eat is kind of under like the total calorie content is like underestimated by 10 percent on food food labels like it's kind of self-correcting because the net result will just be that you think your energy needs are like 10% lower than they actually are. And so, um, yeah, like you're, you're actually, uh, eating and expending more energy than you believe you are, but any sort of adjustments you make have that tracking error built in. Right. So it kind of cancels out. Like it, yeah. it doesn't end up mattering typically. Um, but with micronutrients, things are a little bit hairier. So, you are you do have like some degree of like safety um, related to like calorie and, and macronutrient labeling error because like the twenty percent range is like feasible to enforce by regulation. Um, whereas for micronutrients, generally people are just reporting either like the the results of like food fortification like hey we put like 10 milligrams of iron per serving back into this mm -hmm. in, in which case like those are probably very precise and yes. accurate numbers or in the case of like whole foods um it it's just kind of like based on like averages that are reported to research databases and um there's no there's no like force to like enforce that because like you know if, if you have apples in a fruit cup and those apples just have like lower levels of carotenoids than most apples do. And so like you slightly overestimate the vitamin A content of the apples in the fruit cups. Like no one's going to come after you for that because ultimately it's not your fucking job to like do a full biochemical analysis of all of the apples coming into your factory that go into that food cup. And so you're totally safe and allowed to just assume that the carotenoid content of those apples are the same as every other apple, yep. you know? Um, but like the the content of, of vitamins and minerals can differ considerably between like different fruits and vegetables to an extent that I think folks are somewhat unaware of. Mm -hmm. So for instance, and I'll I'll link this in the show notes, there was a 2018 study testing the vitamin C content of of various foods, but like one of the foods they looked at was baby spinach. Um, and they looked at the vitamin C content, uh, at different points throughout the year. And they found that per 60 gram serving of baby spinach, the level of vitamin C was 
between 5.6 and 39.6 microgram or uh, milligrams of vitamin C per serving, mm-hmm. which, what is that? That's a seven-fold range from the bottom to the top. So that's quite a bit more than tw- 20% above or below yep. kind of the, the median value. Um, and also, uh, unlike calorie or micronutrient content, where like underestimates, overestimates within the context of a whole diet will generally like average out and wash out. Um, if you're getting a lot of vitamin C from eating baby spinach, you would be um, alternately overestimating and underestimating your vitamin C content or your vitamin C intake for extended periods of time because it wasn't just like a random stochastic large range. It varied by season. So during the winter, uh, the vitamin C content averaged like 26 milligrams per 60 gram serving. And uh, during the summer, it averaged like 10 milligrams per 60 gram serving. So there was more than a twofold range, not in terms of like highest and lowest values, but just like average content during the summer versus average content during the winter. Um, so yeah, like you, you could very easily wind up with like relatively large over underestimates for like weeks or months at a time right. due, due to that seasonality component. Um, and like, I, I will also like readily admit that I cherry picked that like most micronutrients don't have. Yeah. It's an extreme example. As much variability or as much like seasonality. Yeah. Like I, I chose an extreme example to to make a point and i'm admitting that to you don't get mad at me for cherry picking because i admitted the cherry picking spinach Um, picking spinach picking yeah um but like like i said just generally trying to make that point that that um things aren't necessarily going to wash out as much and the total amount of variability can be quite a bit larger um and like it's also going to depend a little bit on like geography and farming practice and just like what is the dominant like cultivar of whatever whatever food uh, is like being planted in a particular place in particular time? Um, so like, and it also doesn't have to be like things differing a ton if you're like half a world away or in countries with like drastically different regulations related to um, like soil fortification or or um, like irrigation or, or fertilizer or mm-hmm. whatever. So uh, I'll also link this in the show notes. Um, There was a study looking at like reported nutrient content um, for like various different fruits and vegetables um, in Germany and the Netherlands, which are like right next to each other. And I assume they probably have like pretty similar regulations related to farming. Um, And they found that in general, like a lot of foods had like higher vitamin A and vitamin C levels in Germany than the Netherlands. Mm. Um, And like, you know, there could be like slight differences in regulations or it could just be a matter of like the um, like kind of baseline levels of minerals in the soil, like influenced by the characteristics of the underlying bedrock, Mm -hmm. Um, which, yeah, you're, you're not going to have like a good, easy, robust way to account for that. Yep. Um, which kind of like as supporting information for this, like why the the micronutrient contents of uh, various foods can vary so much is like it it makes sense when you think about it. And I think most people just don't think about it and kind of assume that plants are basically inert 
-hmm. It's just like a a biological container for these nutrients. That's like kind of the same every time. Like they they grow, we pick it, we eat it, and like bada bing, bada boom, it is what it is. Yep. Or uh, if you're like you know, if if you go go like maybe a step deeper, you might think that it's influenced by like soil depletion a little bit. But yeah, like as long as you're using good farming practices, whatever, like it it should basically all be the same all the time. But that's not necessarily the case. And like, it, I think it's, w- once I talk about this, I think you'll find the variability quite a bit more intuitive. Okay. So like with vitamins, mm-hmm. plants make vitamins. Mm-hmm. We eat the plants, we get the vitamins. Those vitamins serve purposes for us. Mm-hmm. They also serve purposes for the plants. Makes sense. And they don't always serve the same purposes for plants that they do for us. And the needs of the plants to produce vitamins depends on what purpose they serve and how uh, whatever processes they're they're supporting like vary over time. So I'll use vitamin C as an example here. Um, vitamin C for us, as mentioned in the last episode, is a essential nutrient because it's an important cofactor in collagen synthesis. Mm-hmm. Like pretty pretty easy, simple enough. Plants. Uh, I should I should have looked this up before hopping on the mic. I don't think plants produce collagen. I think that's I mean I know they don't have like tendons, but mm-hmm. um, I'm pretty sure they don't produce collagen. Or if they do, like they certainly aren't producing much of it. Like mm-hmm. that's that's not the primary thing vitamin C is doing in plants, and and I I don't think it's doing it at all. Anyway, it primarily serves different purposes in plants, and vitamin C does a lot of shit in plants. Um, so it has roles in iron uptake, photosynthesis, hormone production. So like plants produce hormones as well. Uh, pathogen resistance, all stages of the cell cycle, and quite a bit more. Um, oh man, I looked up a review for this and forgot to link it in the show notes or uh, uh, in the outline. I'll, I'll find it again to link it in the show notes. But yeah, like vitamin C does a lot of stuff in plants. That is not the same stuff it does for us. And... Um, like the needs of like the the vitamin C needs of plants are going to likely be influenced um like by by where they are in their growth cycle and like what season they're in. So mm-hmm. for instance, like going back to spinach having more vitamin C in the winter than the summer, like I I don't know this to be the case but just like one possibility is like vitamin C is important for photosynthesis. Uh, spinach is receiving less direct sunlight in the winter than the summer. So like maybe it just needs to make a little bit more vitamin C in the winter to like help the process of photosynthesis along. So, um, but yeah, like all of these things, like, you know, maybe there's, there's more pathogens like in the winter than the summer. So it needs higher vitamin C production to like help with pathogen resistance. But yeah, essentially like it is serving an important purpose for the plant and the plants' needs for it aren't going to be exactly the same all the time. So, like, the production isn't going to be the same all the time. So, yep. like, the amount can vary over mm-hmm. time. Um, and in the case of minerals, so, so that's with vitamins. Like, they serve purposes in plants, and the needs of the plants for those vitamins can vary over time. Yeah, the plants need vitamins, too. Yes. They can use them. For minerals... It is like mostly dependent on soil conditions. Like most most of the minerals that wind up in plants get there because there's minerals in the soil. Mm-hmm. They're taken up in the roots and then transported elsewhere in the plant. 
And so the mineral content of plants is going to be heavily influenced by soil conditions. Um, so I mentioned like soil depletion before, like that's, that's something that there's been, I think like a bit of a moral panic about. And I, I think people are also like slightly too freaked out about where it's like, ah, like there's less like magnesium and peppers than there was when our grandfathers were our age or whatever. Mm. Like that, that, that actually is true to some extent. Um, but the, the extent of the decrease doesn't therefore imply that like the fruits and vegetables we consume are like unnutritious, mm -hmm. like they, but they are like maybe a little bit less micronutrient dense than they used to be. Um, largely again, due to soil depletion, like mm -hmm. there's a lot of people eating a lot of food. Um, and like once magnesium from the soil is taken up into a plant and shipped off to market and consumed, like that particular magnesium molecule is not in the soil anymore. So if it's not repleted over time, like with, with uh, like mineral enhanced fertilizers or whatever, or just like um, in some farming practices, there, there are just like mineral supplements that you would like put in the soil to like replete it. Um, <laughs> just imagine burying little pills. Uh, Here are your vitamins. I mean, I, I, I think it's powdered <laughs> yeah. or, or like dissolved in water. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, so that is also like, that's going to influence the mineral content of uh, foods. And so, yeah, like, um, a, a food grown in like a more mineral rich soil will just have like typically higher mineral content than the same food grown in more mineral poor soil. Um, and it, it could be a pretty significant difference between those two pieces of produce, which again, just like, like an average number from like a standard research database isn't necessarily going to capture that. Yep. Um, just as a general aside, the wildest example of this that I came across was probably selenium. Um, and, and so like the same general process applies with other minerals, but like selenium seems to be one of the minerals with like the most extreme differences between like selenium rich and selenium poor soils. Um, and uh, yeah, so like, overall selenium intake basically seems to be like a crapshoot where like it's so heavily influenced by soil conditions and it can vary so much which like that that relates just to like bedrock stuff like there's just more selenium rich and selenium poor bedrock and that kind of percolates up into the soil yeah and so um yeah like there, there are foods that are like generally selenium rich or like have selenium but like if it's grown in like super selenium poor soil like you might still wind up consuming almost none um and so like th that's been observed in uh parts of the u.s and parts of europe um like re those regional differences are observed it's also been observed in china and like china seems to be the area of the world with like the most extreme differences from like the most selenium rich to selenium poor regions. Mm. So there are two diseases linked to selenium deficiency that are, I believe only uh, observed in like different parts, like, like selenium poor parts of China that like haven't been observed outside of that. Cause like, in the grand scheme of things, like, like true selenium deficiency is, like, quite rare. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, it has been noted in China. So there's a disease called Keshan disease, K-E-S-H-A-N, which is, like, a particular type of cardiomyopathy that has 
only hmm. been observed in like these almost completely selenium deficient regions yeah, of China. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. Another one called Cashin Beck disease, which is also again like a very particular type of osteoarthritis that is only observed in those like completely selenium deficient wow. regions. Um, and then also there there were issues in China in the eighties with like selenium toxicity in this one region, which was like the result of coal runoff that was mm. apparently like very selenium rich that got into the soil. Um, and like the people generally seemed to be fine. And then like their hair and like fingernails started falling out. Oh no. Which is, which is like oh, no. the first like obvious uh, uh, outcome of like uh, selenosis, like high, like excess selenium intake. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, yeah. So just as wow. kind of a, a bit of a case study in yeah. how uh, soil levels of a particular nutrient can influence um, intake of that nutrient. Because like the dietary patterns of the people getting like Keshan or Cashin Beck disease weren't like dramatically different than people who weren't getting those diseases. It's just like other people were like farming and growing rice in more selenium rich regions. And th those were like super selenium poor regions. So like eat broadly the same stuff. And most of the folks in China were eating enough selenium and folks in those particular regions were eating almost none. Mm -hmm. um, and also, like I, I mentioned in the last episode that selenium, I found it fascinating when I was looking at research on micronutrients. So th this is just like a little bit of an aside. Um, but it has like the craziest dose response curve in terms of like outcomes of high versus low selenium intake and like the broad number of things that are influenced by selenium intake and and so like for in, like i didn't know anything about selenium until i started looking into micronutrient research um like it's it's just not a nutrient like people think about hardly ever um unless they really love brazil nuts which are like super selenium rich and so oh, like nice. you can maybe wind up with like excess selenium consumption if you eat like a shitload of brazil nuts Anyway, beyond that, like most people have no reason to ever think about selenium. Mm -hmm. um, when I hear it, it sounds like the name for the Stan Army of Selena Gomez. <laughs> uh, I can see Those that. Those are the yeah. selenators, though. So a um, little different. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, but yeah, so um, selenium is an essential nutrient because it is incorporated into proteins called selenoproteins, which do do a bunch of stuff. Uh, but the, in, in general, like most nutrients, it's thought that like the general effects of selenium on human health have like a U-shaped curve mm -hmm. where like, if you don't consume enough, bad stuff happens. If you consume too much, bad stuff happens. And then there's just kind of like an optimal intake in the middle. But for specific things that are influenced by selenium intake, you see like wildly different dose response curves so like with selenium intake and type 2 diabetes risk there's like almost just a linear relationship where higher mm. selenium intakes are associated with like linearly higher rates of type 2 diabetes um but for cancer risk uh because like, like selenoproteins are involved in like various aspects of like immunity and cell cycle regulation and whatnot um for certain cancers, there's just like a negative linear relationship between selenium intake and and uh, incidence of those cancers. But then like it it's for other cancers, there are just like different dose response curves. And like it's 
it's crazy. Like I found it, I found it fascinating both uh, how much like soil levels and therefore like intake levels differ and like how much just geography influences selenium intake. And then also the fact that like, I had it in my mind that for like most nutrients there, there was just kind of that like inverted U-shaped relationship where like there is an amount that's good. You mm-hmm. go above that. It, it like, if you go too far above that, it's bad. If you go too far below it, it's bad. Mm-hmm. But with, with selenium, like the, the, if you conceive of like general health as a broad category, you see that same like inverted U-shaped relationship. But for like specific outcomes, you're seeing just like weird linear relationships going different ways for different outcomes. Oh my like, gosh. It's wild, man. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just thought that was neat, and so I wanted to share it's it. It's a bit of a wild card. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it talked a little bit about plants, like why why nutrient concentrations differ. Either the, the needs of the plant to produce that nutrient vary over time or by region for, for various reasons because those vitamins are serving like functional purposes for the plants uh, and for minerals levels can vary mostly due to soil conditions mm-hmm. for animals like animal products the um, primary dynamic to keep in mind is the uh, concept of bioaccumulation which is just that like for certain vitamins and minerals they just accumulate up the food chain mm-hmm. so they're initially produced by a plant or like a plankton or something and they're eaten by small herbivores, which are eaten by small predators, which are eaten by large, larger predators. And it just just percolates up the food chain like that. Yep. Um, so a, a good example of this is like omega-3 concentrations in salmon are like close to three times higher in wild salmon than farmed salmon. What? Um, yeah, because like farmed salmon are just kind of fed feed, I guess. Yeah, like that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't like know that food. though. Like I know the bad example of like mercury in fish but yeah. i didn't know omega-3 in salmon being so much higher in in wild salmon yeah yeah like it's really interesting yeah th- that is um th- th- that's another thing where i think folks i think there there might be like a little bit too much scaremongering over like farmed versus fresh mm. like uh, yeah. seafood products or whatever but i mean in the case of omega-3 content in salmon like it it is, it is true that, like, fresh is considerably better. Damn. Um, and the reason for that is that most of the omega-3 in the marine ecosystem is made by phytoplankton, mm-hmm. which are then consumed by little fishies, consumed by bigger fishies, and some of those bigger fishies are salmon. And so, like, wild salmon are consuming omega-3s that, that have kind of concentrated up the food chain by the time it got to them. Yep. Like, plankton have... A little omega threes, the little fishies that eat the plankton get the omega threes from the plankton, so they have a little bit higher levels. The slightly larger fishies that eat those get the omega threes from the very little fishies, and then salmon eat those slightly larger fishies. And so yeah, like efficient it, bioaccumulation. Um, the example of mercury you gave, mm-hmm. like, like you said, that's that is the exact same principle, but mm-hmm. kind of negative and in reverse. Where, yeah, like there's like very low levels of mercury in water, but like it gets into the plankton or like the very little fishies. And then as larger and larger fish eat those smaller fish, they just get higher and higher mercury levels because at no point along the way can any of them excrete the mercury. And so it just bioaccumulates up the food chain. Uh, And um, 
one interesting thing to note about that is like that wasn't something people needed to worry about until the mid 1800s because like almost all of the mercury and water came from burning coal and so mm. like th- i guess there were there there was probably like technically slightly higher levels of mercury and like tuna than like shad in 1820 or whatever but there were still really low levels of mercury and tuna in 1820 but then once coal burning power plants started popping up all over the place (sighs) it just like raised kind of the background level of mercury and water high enough that you could get enough bioaccumulation to potentially be dangerous if you eat too much predatory fish too often uh, which is a bummer, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's where it came depressing. from. Yeah. It's, it's not just like an inherent facet of the world. It's something we fucked yeah, up. It's the result of the first industrial revolution and things that have followed it. Uh, another example is like vitamin A. Um, so th- this was, this was something that, uh, on the first episode, people were just like, ah, oh, why didn't you mention this one fun fact I know about a particular nutrient? Um, <laughs> that, probably sounded too dismissive but no like i i okay okay little it's just such a specific piece of feedback that it seems like a lot of people gave like mm, close to a dozen people did i I got i got a lot of dms about this one specific thing is it about bear bear liver yeah it's about bear liver it is a fun fact i almost Uh, said it earlier I, i mean that would be fine it's no so okay okay this is this is a little aside and this is just going to be me complaining for a brief second one of the things that gets under my skin. Oh my god! One of the things that gets under my skin uh, is when I'm given feedback or criticism mm-hmm. that implies that I am uninformed or don't know something simply because I did not mention that one thing in one single piece of content. Yes, um, that makes sense. And oh my god! In in. If it's just like one thing in one episode of the podcast, it's cool. Mm-hmm. But when over the course of two weeks, I get like a dozen people being like, oh, did you not know about like bear liver and vitamin A? I'm like, shut the fuck up, all of you. Like it it, uh, it, it irks me after a while because it's like, no, guess what? The episodes are already long. Do you want me to tell you everything I know about nutrition every time we do a nutrition episode on the podcast? No, because each episode would be slightly longer than they currently are (laughs) and no one wants that um anyway yeah vitamin a bioaccumulates up the food chain uh and here here here's a fun little fact for for you folks that know the fact about bear liver aggressive so um you you have probably heard that yeah if you like a single bite of polar bear liver Mm -hmm. has enough vitamin a to kill someone Mm -hmm. like if, if you eat like pretty much any polar bear liver there's there's a very good chance you're gonna die um stay away from polar bears and their organs and everything polar bears are spooky man they are they hunt humans who are in their food chain don't fuck with them don't fuck with them um anyway yes they have toxic levels of vitamin a Mm -hmm. in their liver um but it is also generalizably true that other predators also have high levels of vitamin a in their liver like yeah higher than the herbivores that they might be eating because of the same process of bioaccumulation Mm -hmm. but polar bears and arctic animals in particular are kind of the only ones to which 
the the principle of like a single bite will kill you applies like if you had like a single bite of black bear liver like it probably wouldn't taste good and it it if you had like a large serving it might have enough vitamin a to to fuck you up but it also has like way lower vitamin a concentrations than polar bear livers do like mm-hmm. um and so it's but also that same concern relates to other arctic animals so it's not exclusive to polar bears like bearded seals also have like similarly high levels of vitamin a and so if you ate bearded seal liver it would also kill you um and that is because like due to the the principle of bioaccumulation um like it's a thing that's fairly specific to the arctic just because the bottom level of that food chain just has like particularly high like vitamin A levels. Mm. Like the the arctic plankton that are at the very base of that food chain that start that process of bioaccumulation just have higher vitamin A levels than like grass does. That you know like would be kind yeah, of the, the base of a terrestrial a food bear. system. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, yeah. So so for people listening, I knew that fun fact and in fact, I knew another fun fact about that fun fact. Greg, you know so many fun facts. Everyone knows that it's all right. I know. I'm. I'm I probably get too worked up about that, but it, it is. It is just like the, the. If someone says, "Hey, I wish you would have mentioned this thing," that's cool. Mm-hmm. If it's how how do how did you not know this? Like, were you? Why are you unaware of this thing? It's like don't don't make that assumption. Like it, it bothers me. I'm a person too. I have feelings. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's let's move on. Okay. Um. Because we're, we're just about done. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Micronutrient content varies considerably. There's more variability than there is uh, than, like, labeling error in calories and, and macronutrients for, like, very understandable reasons. In animal products, like, different amounts of stuff, like, lo- like different amounts of nutrients lower in the food chain allow for different levels and amounts of bioaccumulation up a food chain mm-hmm. and just like the age of the animal is going to matter as well mm. like how long has it had to consume stuff and for it to bioaccumulate in that animal yeah. itself uh for plants again vitamins serve purposes in plants the the need their needs for the vitamins differ over time so their production of the vitamins differs over time minerals a lot of it's about soil conditions um, so yeah, there, there is just a lot of variability there, mm-hmm. both over time between different regions, et cetera, et cetera. You get the point. Um, so that is just something to be aware of if you are interested in tracking micronutrient intake with calories and macros, you can be like reasonably confident that the number at the end of the day is probably within about five or 10% of your actual intake, as long as you did a pretty good job of logging Mm -hmm. with micronutrients, you should like in your head, just build in a little bit more fuzz when you're looking at that number. (laughs) Like if, um, yeah, if you see you had, I don't know, 700 milligrams of vitamin A or micrograms, whatever, whatever the units are, doesn't matter. Um, well, it matters a lot, but, (laughs) uh, we'll just go with milligrams. If you see that you consumed 700 milligrams of, uh, vitamin A today, um, just kind of like build in maybe like 20%, 20, 30% range of like fuzziness around that. Like, you know, maybe it says 700, maybe your actual consumption was 500, 550. Maybe it was like 900, a thousand, like it is, but it should be, it should at least point you in the right direction. 
but the the amount of precision you can track with is inherently lower than it is for calories or macros. Um, and then just the final thing to note about this is that micronutrients are a little bit difficult to track if you would just like to track micronutrients to, to understand how much you're consuming now mm -hmm. and just kind of like audit intake for yourself. So um, government agencies and, and regulations don't require manufacturers to list all of the nutrients contained in the food on a food label. Yeah. Um, and they're not required to like have a secondary database or whatever that they then report to the government of like, hey, you know, I might only list nine nutrients on the label, but we we actually have this data on all uh, of these other nutrients yeah. behind the scenes. Like they're not required to have that at all. Mm -hmm. And they don't. Um, so, and, and like the, the fact that it's not all listed on nutrition labels makes a lot of sense. Right. Cause like, it would be very big. Yeah. If every essential nutrient was listed on every nutrition label, the sheer size of the list would take focus away from like higher priority nutrients that governments like do want people to actually pay attention to for public health reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, in, in most countries, like food manufacturers are only required to report energy content, macronutrient content, sugar, saturated fat, fiber, uh, and depending on the country, either salt or sodium. Um, and that's, that's it as far as things that are fairly universal. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of countries then also have regulations regarding like food fortification. Like if you do add some like iron or B vitamins to the food or whatever, like the synthetic vitamins or minerals that you add to the food, like you're required to report them on the label yeah. as well. Um, but beyond that, like there are some like country specific things. So like in the U.S., Food manufacturers have to report iron, calcium, vitamin D, and potassium. Like food manufacturers in Europe, for instance, don't have to report those things. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's there's a fairly small list of mandatory reporting requirements for nutrients. Everything beyond that is voluntary. And if it's voluntary, they ain't doing it. Yeah, they're absolutely not. So um, in the article on the Macro Factor website, I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes. There was a study... Um, looking at the uh, uh, frequency of nutrient reporting on UK food level or UK food labels, like mm -hmm. what percentage of food labels reported about this nutrient. And there's just like a long list. And I'm just going to ask listeners to like look at that list and try to try to figure out for themselves what nutrients are mandatory on UK nutrition labels and which are voluntary. Yeah. And I'll just tell you, it's fucking obvious. Yeah. Like the the reporting frequency goes from like in excess of 95% down to like, I think like 70 something percent for fiber, which is voluntary, but it, like it's a voluntary one that a lot of people did choose to report down to, I think the next one was maybe calcium at like 8% of food labels. Like yeah, like just single digits. Just falls off a cliff. Yeah. So if something is not a mandatory reporting nutrient, like just no one reports it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you do want to track your micronutrients, you're going to need some way to reference like, uh, like, government or research databases that will have like robust micronutrient intake for foods. 
the the analog way to do this is just keep a food journal uh write down everything you consume in a day try to make note of like portion sizes and then just like pull up the usda database and look at each food for yourself and make note of things like i i'm making the point that like yes we sell a nutrition app and you can do this much easier and quicker in the app but you absolutely do not have to use it or any other nutrition application to do it like it it is possible to do it kind yeah, of manually. of course. Um, Sounds not fun, though. Yeah. But it's, it is it is much... I don't just say this because I'm an interested party. It is just, like, objectively much faster and easier to do it using an app that allows you to do it. Um, and you're going to need an app that uh, is, like, hooked up to high-quality research-grade databases right. that have plenty of foods with robust micronutrient reporting mm-hmm. and even then like it is still more of a hassle than just tracking macros and calories because mm-hmm. like i said most branded food products do not have micronutrient information um so you would need to track like common food equivalents for instance like you know if you had a if you had like a whopper from bk you couldn't just track a whopper and get the micronutrients for it like you would need to um, try to find, like, a beef entry. Uh, it doesn't have cheese, does it? No. Whoppers don't have cheese. But, like, a, a beef entry, a bun entry, like, ketchup, pickles, whatever, um, that pretty closely match the macronutrient and energy content of the Whopper and will give you a pretty good approximation of, therefore, the micronutrient content of said sandwich. Um so yeah, like you'll you'll need to track your food and use like common food equivalents from research grade databases instead of just being able to like scan barcodes and pretty easily log branded foods. Right. So it does it does take more effort even if you use an app that allows you to do it and save a lot of effort over the manual approach like it yeah, it is just still yeah. a little bit more difficult. Yes, especially if you eat a lot of branded foods. Yes. If you don't eat a lot of branded foods, it's about yeah, the same amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just to wrap up this episode, because we we have reached the end of the content I had prepared. Okay. Um, takeaways. One, there are still a surprising number of open questions related to macronutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, as discussed in the last episode, we're still not even like 100% sure we have a comprehensive list of all essential and conditionally essential nutrients. And as discussed in this episode, the research describing intake needs for essential nutrients is still in a lot of cases surprisingly sparse. Um, For example, there are still a lot of nutrients that just have AIs instead of like being able to work in the the DRI framework. Um, And there are still like some methodological concerns and just like analytical concerns related to to the data that does exist. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- this is we we know a lot more than we did a hundred years ago, but there's still a lot of open questions, a lot more to learn, and a lot of room for just more research and and methodologically better research in in a lot of cases. Number two, um, with the first thing being said. There is a, an element of just, like, the proof being in the pudding. Um, like, we we probably do understand micronutrient needs not as well as we could, but probably good enough. Yeah. 
And the food supply in modern industrialized countries is like broadly sufficient for most people to be fine without ever thinking about micronutrient intake. Um, as, as you mentioned at the start, Lens, going mm-hmm. through the history, we used to see a lot of disease that was like specifically linked and owing to micronutrient deficiencies. Yep. In 2023, like we, we just don't, um, in, at least in wealthy countries where people have access to enough food and food from diverse food sources. Mm-hmm. Um, in like really impoverished communities that have like less access to food, less access to like diverse food choices, like there there are still issues, but like like by and large, it it was an access question. And for most people, the access question has been solved. And so like most of the time, like people people are fine and they don't need to be that concerned about micronutrient intake. Um and so, yeah, if, if you're not generally undernourished and you regularly consume foods and beverages from all major food groups, you're you're probably going to be okay. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think that this is something that most people need to be preoccupied with or overly concerned about unless you have specific symptoms that uh, could be like directly attributable to a, to a micronutrient deficiency and you go to your doctor, they get blood work, and they say, like, hey, yeah, like, you have, say, like, anemia because your iron's super low. Like, maybe try to consume more iron. Like, that that still happens, but that th- those are things that can be addressed in a medical context. And, yeah, if you have concerns related to that, talk to your doctor. But, again, like, most people most of the time are, are broadly fine. Um, though I will note there are some exceptions. So... The first one is there are like certain diseases, conditions, or medications that can increase your micronutrient needs. Um, but if you have any of those things, your doctor will probably tell you about it and say like, hey, supplement with this thing, you'll be fine. Uh, two is that people with diets that involve excluding entire food groups mm. might need to be a little bit more concerned. So makes sense. all of this is in the context of consuming sufficient food from broadly diverse sources if if you yeah just exclude entire food groups from your diet like there is a greater likelihood that you might have issues related to insufficient micronutrient intake um and then this is the only like really specific like kind of uh, recommendation that i'll give related to this stuff um is that if you're listening to this and you're um a, a a darker skinned person, like if you're African American, Hispanic, uh, like South Asian or whatever, living in the U.S. or Northern Europe, um, there's a there's a decent chance that it might not be a bad idea to get checked for uh, like vitamin D status. So um, I'll, I'll link a paper related to this in the show notes. Uh, like I mentioned in the last episode. Um, your the the ability of the skin to synthesize vitamin d differs by latitude because that influences like how direct the sunlight is and how many uv rays are are reaching your skin um and like melanin content of the skin also affects that like it protects you from sunburn like fewer uv rays penetrate the skin but fewer are penetrating the skin also to stimulate vitamin Mm -hmm. d synthesis um so yeah like the rates of like like very low vitamin D levels in the blood are like 15 to 20 times higher in 
uh, people living in America of African descent versus European descent. So, um, yeah, like that's that that is a pretty broad difference. And so, yeah, if, if you're like black or brown listening to this, you live in the U.S. or Europe and you haven't had your vitamin D levels checked, it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to do so. Yeah. Um, and then last thing is uh, if you'd like to audit your micronutrient intake, you'll generally need to do some food logging since most micronutrients aren't listed on food labels. Um, if you do that, again, you can do it manually. It's going to take you forever. Um, you'll you'll probably want to use an app that does have like common foods coming from research databases um, that are integrated and obviously labeled for you to choose those to be the ones you track. Um, and yeah. Macrofactor does this. You should check it out. It's great, um, but it's not the only one that does so. Uh, so, yeah, there there are other options out there. Just want to make that clear. Um, but a specific benefit of Macrofactor is, I believe, we are the only app that does actually clearly list the ranges of nutrients, like showing you the LTI, RDA, and UL for for various nutrients, instead of just presenting everything as just like one target or maybe like the RDA and the UL. So anyway, I think it's a great product. Um, but I don't, I don't want to make it sound as if it is necessary to track your, your micronutrient intake. There, there are other options. Um, so yeah, that's, that's about it as far as content goes, but I do have just two Little things related to this to end on. One is depressing and the other is kind of cool. Okay. Can I lead with the depressing one so that we yeah. don't end on a low note? Yes. Okay. So um, as I just mentioned, mm-hmm. if you live in a developed country and have access to plenty of food and diverse food choices, you generally don't need to worry about micronutrient intake all that much like you're you're probably gonna be fine or if you're consuming like a little bit less of a nutrient than you need to it'll probably be in kind of that insufficient range rather than the deficient range and oftentimes like insufficiencies like aren't that bad aren't that scary so like eh, whatever most of the time it's fine but that is not universal worldwide um like in lower and even some middle income countries uh diseases like related to or directly the result of micronutrient deficiencies are still very common and i think i think a lot of people don't fully understand like how common um like like deaths due to starvation and undernutrition and not even just deaths but just like critical lifelong health problems like related to to undernutrition are still around the world like so still like in 2023 around like 9 to 10 million people per year die um from malnutrition and some of that is due to like kind of starvation per se like just less energy than than one would need to survive but a lot is due to like undernutrition from like micronutrients so you know, like like Pellegra and like Beriberi, they're they're not really things in America anymore, but like they are still things in like other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, yeah, severe micronutrient deficiencies are still like a 
really major global health concern. Um, again, like on a scale that I think a lot of people don't realize, like nine to 10 million people a year, like that's, that's a lot. Um, like what's the quote? Like one death is a tragedy, but a thousand is a statistic. Like Mm I, I think that still so many fucking people are dying of malnutrition that it, it is, if, if you hear this, it can be easy for it to, um, yeah, just come across as a statistic instead of like mass human tragedy on an almost unimaginable scale, but it is mass human tragedy on an almost unimaginable scale. And, um, yeah, I don't know, like, ah, not to, not to be like too fatalistic about this, but like, it's, it, it is a problem that is like solvable to a degree that makes me like extremely mad. Mm-hmm. Cause like, it's, it's not something that like I can do anything about in a tangible way or like any of you listening could do anything about in a tangible way. But like there, like the, I, th- I think the estimated, the estimated cost like globally for just like completely eradicating severe malnutrition. Um, and again, like saving nine to 10 million lives per year, which again, like that's a shitload of people. The The last I saw like the estimated cost to like make that not a thing anymore. is like 40 billion a year, which like, that's a, that's a big number. I don't have $40 billion, but that's like, for instance, like just to pull a, a random comparison out of the hat, like that's like one twentieth of the United States military budget. Yep. Um, so yeah, like that's that's fucking cool, and it pisses me off every time I think about it. Um, but if you uh, if you would like to like at least try to make a small difference uh, in that area, there 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 are a lot of like high quality charities that that. Um, like help with food fortification and like food access in parts of the developing world where severe malnutrition is still common. Um, one that I'll that I'll link in the show notes that you might want to check out uh, is called GAIN, which stands for Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Um, like I said, there there are plenty of others. Like a, another another good one is like Iodine Global Network, which um, helps with like uh, uh, like salt iodization programs, which like. We don't think that much about like goiters anymore in the U.S., but like that used to be a big thing because like mm-hmm. people were iodine deficient and severe iodine deficiencies during early childhood um, is related to like, well, not related to causes um, like impeded uh, like mental development, um, which is like not rectifiable, like it's a lifelong thing. So uh, there there are like other charities like that that kind of target specific. Um, micronutrients where, where malnutrition is common. Uh, but GAIN is like a highly rated, like well-run charity that kind of takes a holistic approach to helping out with some of these problems. Um, and so, yeah, like if, if, the, if that's something that uh, you care deeply about, um, that, that would be a good place to, to send some money. Um, so that's the, that's the depressing one shift gears ah it's it's going to be hard to end on a high note after this but um other just little thing okay related oh so this is this is one of i think the funner funner facts uh related to micronutrients (laughs) 
God, I'm trying to put myself in a better headspace because I don't... This this is... Okay. Okay. I've got it. I can do it. Um, so, micronutrients, and in particular, vitamin D, likely played a pretty large role in the success of the Vikings, mm-hmm. um, which is just, I think, a fun little historical fact. Mm-hmm. So... In the last episode, we talked about vitamin D deficiencies and rickets and osteomalacia and how that causes like poor bone formation. People wind up short. Um, and yeah, so that was like a big thing in a lot of Europe during the time that the Vikings were, were crushing it and doing their thing. Um, and if you if you go back and read like contemporary accounts of Viking raids, people talk like these are absolute giants like raiding our village like what is going on here yeah um but like they weren't uh so the the thing is like people from like norway sweden like the the parts of the world where the vikings came from they were like about the same height during the era of the viking raids as they are now like they just didn't have the same growth stunting that the rest of europe was dealing with Mm -hmm. And that may seem somewhat counterintuitive because really high latitude, much less direct like uh, sunlight Mm -hmm. for vitamin D synthesis. But um, they ate a lot of fish and they kind of took the don't let anything go to waste approach to eating fish. And so they consumed uh, a lot of cod liver and cod liver oil. And cod liver oil is is quite rich in vitamin D. And so... um, like probably the largest reason that they were just like so much larger and more physically imposing than anyone else in Europe who they were waging war against was just because like they were consuming enough vitamin D. Yeah. Um, And that's wild to think about because like that has had pretty major ramifications in just like world history. So like a, a little one is, um, the English language is kind of a descendant of Germanic and Romance languages, but mm-hmm. is also, I don't know if it's totally unique, but it's fairly unique in that we don't have like gendered nouns besides nouns for like people or animals that are clearly of a gender. But mm-hmm. like, you know, we like a, a table, for instance. Right. It's it's just the table. It's not like Mr. or Miss Table, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. Um. Whereas, like, most Germanic and Romance languages do have that. And I don't think the exclusive reason, but, like, one of the the reasons that that is not the case in English is because of the Vikings. Like, after they they raided the British Isles, like, a lot of them also settled in the British Isles. Um, they took they took British wives, and they tried to learn the language. And, uh, like like, Old English did have gendered nouns, but, like, the Vikings learned the language pretty well, but, like, they just didn't want to deal with that shit. So, like, <laughs> they just dropped it. Yeah. And I am very grateful for that. Because, yeah. like, when I was trying to learn German in school, like, I did not like learning, like, what is it? Like, der Tisch for table or, like, die Fenster for window. Whatever. Like, I don't I don't remember, like, most of them. And, like, I, I feel like that's unimportant. Like, th- it's a table. It's not Mr. Table. Like, it's fine. <laughs> um... So that's like a little thing. Another thing is like as a somewhat indirect result of the success of the Viking raids, 
uh, at least partially owing to their their uh, consumption of cod liver oil, oil mm-hmm. and vitamin D is um, the progression of feudalism and like the crystallization or, or like the start of the process of like state formation in Europe, where basically like since the fall of the Roman Empire, with the exception of just like a brief period during the Carolingian Renaissance and like Charlemagne, his sons, whatever, um, there weren't really like states in Europe. Like there were just little principalities and like, yeah, little hamlets and whatnot. And there, there weren't like what we would think of as nation states. Um, and there also certainly weren't what we would think of as like modern nations by the end of the period of Viking raids. But like there were, there was like a bit of feudal order at the start of, of the Viking related period. Um, and one of the issues that people had was like individual like coastal lords couldn't like marshal enough forces to uh, like successfully repel Viking raids. So it led to like the need for more cooperation and like centralization of authority to be able to like start being able to more efficiently coordinate responses to Viking raids and like that was one of the first steps down the path to like the development of what we think of now as like European nation states. Um, and like if the Vikings weren't eating the vitamin D and they were smaller <laughs> and punier and couldn't raid as successfully. Um, yeah. Who, who knows, who knows what Europe and uh, by extension, cause like Europe for better or worse, I think in a lot of cases for worse uh, played, <laughs> played a pretty large role in shaping uh, world history starting like a couple years after that with, um, you know, exploration and uh, the slave trade and colonization and all of that. So who knows if, if or how or when like any of that would have happened were it not for the Vikings consuming vitamin D. Uh, And like, uh, like I'm not, I'm not trying to create like a grand theory of history where that was just like the one causal (laughs) factor, but you know, the, the 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 way that just, like, a small thing can, like, at least have, like, a partial influence on ultimately, like, large cascading effects subsequent. Like, I just think it's kind of neat to think about. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the Vikings, not all that big and scary by modern standards, but by the standards of their day, big and scary because of the vitamin D. Cool thing to end on. Um, that's all I got. Yeah. What are we going to talk about next episode? Uh, We're going to talk more about micronutrients. It will be the third part and final part in the series um, where we'll talk a little bit more about like if you do want to uh, like track and monitor your micronutrient intake, like which which ones might you want to pay a little bit closer attention to because like the the risk of like insufficient intake or like rates of insufficient intake do differ like pretty dramatically where some things like basically no one's consuming insufficient amounts like sodium for instance unless you're trying to consume a low sodium diet like you're you're probably fine like you're consuming enough maybe too much who knows um but then like for other nutrients like deficiencies are rare but like insufficient intake eating a little bit less than like maybe you you could or should is considerably more common. So like, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about 
why you should, if you pay attention to micronutrients, you shouldn't be like too tunnel visioned about it and think about them excessively kind of outside of the context of like the overall food matrix and just like other beneficial things about food that aren't just purely down to like quantifiable micronutrient yeah. intake. Um, and also I, I want a chance to take questions. Um, cause I'm sure by the end of the series, people probably have some questions about micronutrients. And so, uh, I think those first two things I mentioned, I don't think they'll take that long to get through. Hopefully we'll see. I mean, we thought this would be a shorter episode. Um, but I, I would like to have time to answer listener questions. So that's that's probably what we have on deck for next time. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, as mentioned at the top of the show, we will be back to chat with you more in three weeks instead of two. Uh, hope they go great. Thanks for listening. And goodbye. Bye.